to Adventure Rider Radio Raw, a roundtable-style spin-off from Adventure Rider Radio that we do each month about motorcycle travel. And on this episode of Raw, episode 81, we are talking about protecting your bling while traveling and dealing with corrupt officials. All that and a bunch more coming up. Before we get going, I want to give a shout-out to a couple of people who helped the show incredibly this past month with the support of $50 or more. Russ Burgess and John Sirabassi from Emmaus Moto Tours. Thank you both so much. We appreciate that uh, people uh, support what we're doing here with Adventure Rider Radio and Adventure Rider Radio Raw. And remember, anything $50 or more gets you a shout out on the show like you just heard me do. Um, we also send out some cool Adventure Rider Radio stickers. But we would really love it if you consider our monthly support at our patron account, all at AdventureRiderRadio.com and click on support. Now, in case Raw is a new discovery for you, I mentioned Adventure Rider Radio. That is our flagship show. comes out every week. Drop by the website. You'll see what it's all about. AdventureRiderRadio.com. Now, here we go. Adventure Rider Radio Raw for October 2022. Recorded live from the Canoe S Media Studio deep in the boreal forest of North America, this is Adventure Rider Radio Raw, roundtable discussions about motorcycle, travel, and anything else that crosses our mind, completely unscripted, raw, and personal. My name is Jim Martin, and today the virtual roundtable afforded through the magic of the internet, I'm joined by, I'm going to have to say many of my esteemed regular Overland co-hosts, as well, we have two guests back again from last month, Mickness and Elsby Ulivier. Mickness and Elsby, hello. Hello. Hi. How are you guys doing? (laughs) <laughs> Great to have you guys back again. Thanks very much. Because I know you guys you guys just Thank finished you. a um a presentation, didn't you? Like really hours before this. Yes, we actually were invited by uh, one of the BMW clubs uh, here in South Africa to come and talk a little bit about our travels and our products. So yeah, it was quite fun. <laughs> Mm, very nice. Okay, well, I, I'm going to move through the group here to get everybody in. Shirley Hardy Ricks is back. She's in Australia. Welcome back, Shirley. We missed you last month. Oh, thank you very much. I missed you too. I did listen in though and heard my husband give me an absolute bagging because I left my Vegemite at home. <laughs> <laughs> it was entertaining to find that out, of course. And, uh, yeah. and what did you do to, to remedy the situation? What, having no Vegemite? Yeah, I'm, I'm like, because well, I thought you would fly back. And get the Vegemite and go back again. I expected that to happen. No, it was discussed on several occasions. My travelling companion complained bitterly at breakfast that we had no Vegemite, but um, we survived and we avoided eating the putrid shark and boiled sheep's head, which are delicacies in Iceland. But uh, it's nice to be home. I want to talk about this, so I'm going to come back to you, Shirley. Sam Manicom is in the UK just off a plane. Hello, Sam. Hi, everybody. Um, Yeah, too right. It's absolutely brilliant to be home, but I am missing the road. Um, Seven weeks and I was well back into the flow. Just fabulous riding. Um, Incredibly beautiful parts of the States and mostly on secondary roads that had just had me winding through history and geography. Um, Jim, can I say a couple of thank yous? Yeah, sure. Go ahead. Okay. Well, first of all, I'd like to say thank you to everybody who came and hunted me out at one of the events. It really has been brilliant to have the chance to meet you. And I do hope that our paths cross again on one of the trips in the future. 
I'd particularly like to thank all Adventure Rider Radio and Raw listeners who have passed on such wonderful comments about the shows. Jim, Beth, Grant, Shirley, Brian, Michelle, your ears must have been burning big time, as must every guest who's ever appeared on Adventure Rider Radio. Um, just wonderful comments about the shows and so on. So thank you, everybody. Um, your support for um, the shows and so on is absolutely wonderful. Cheers. Um, I also want to thank the companies that invited me to join them um, to do presentations. So that's Overland Expo, uh, Wailing Wayne and MOA, BMW Motorcycles of Detroit, Frontline Eurosports in Salem and the BMW Riders Association. And every single one of those events was completely different to the next, but each was brilliant fun and I just met such good people. I do also need to say a little thank you to those who helped keep me on the road because, as usual, I had a, a little mishap or two. But moving rapidly on, I can't uh, wait no, to no, get no, back. No, 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 You're not moving rapidly <laughs> on because I was going to ask you about this. I saw something, some comment. Now, I'm not on social media very much, but I, I saw some comment on a post of yours, something about hitting something. And I thought, there's no way. This must be old. Did something happen? Something hit me. Mm-hmm. Go on. So the story behind this is that um, at, a, at a, cross, a crossroads, traffic lights, there's quite a big pickup truck in front of me. Uh, the lights turn uh, to green and we move off. Now, on the right-hand side, on the other side of the crossroads is a gas station. And on the left-hand side, about 50 yards along, there's another gas station, which had cheaper fuel. So being a, a cheapskate, of course, I've noted the cheaper one and looked down and now I don't need any fuel, so it's not worth going over there to fill up. Well, the guy in front of me in his big pickup truck pulled into the middle of the road, not indicating, um, and I just assumed that he was going into the gas station. Many people in the States don't indicate what they're doing and just carried on going in a, I just carried on going in a straight line. Um, he, this, this chap in his pickup truck just swung a hard right um, and came straight at me. Now, because I was only going, I don't know, 15, 20 miles an hour, if that, I almost managed to get out of his way. But uh, one of my panniers just clipped the outside of his, um, his front wheel because it was, you know, he was on hard lock. So you can imagine the position the tire was in. And I just clipped it, perhaps by an inch, if that. But of course, that sent me wobbling. I did manage to stay on, which was quite pleasing um, because he bounced me onto to fairly loose gravel. And, um, well, you couldn't wish to be hit by a nicer person. He just leapt straight out of his cab and came dashing across to me full of apologies. I didn't see you. I didn't know you were there, which, you know, I was a little bit cynical about because I've got a bright yellow crash helmet, headlights on, two spotlights, and I'm wearing a fluorescent stripy jacket. Um, and I had parked well behind him at the traffic light, so he must have seen me sitting there. But anyway, he obviously didn't use his mirrors or his indicators. Anyway, his first comment to me was, I must have crushed your leg. Um, let's, I'll get straight on the phone and get the EMTs here. And I said to him, well, no, you didn't. Um, my hard panniers absorbed the impact and I had a nice little pocket of protection and I'm absolutely fine, but let's just let me get off the bike and let's have a look and see if there's any damage done. And he instantly straight away said, um, I'm fully insured. If there's any damage, it's down to me. Um, I didn't see you, didn't look properly, et cetera, et cetera. And wow, you know, I'm on a seven week tour and I could see that, you know, it it could 
blow up into something that involved police and statements and all of the rest of it. And I was having too good a time to, to go around with this. And there was, there was, yeah, I could see there was a bit of bending going on. Um, the pannier that was hit was knocked in towards the bike. But other than that, everything seemed to be absolutely fine. So we just shook hands and wished each other's other well. And um, we're both grateful that it hadn't been a lot nastier than it was. But of course, yeah, that rack was bent and the subframe was bent. Oh. But as with all adventures there's that, aren't, that are a bit wobbly, um, and this one certainly was, um, there are silver linings. And I linked up with a couple of people who really knew what they were doing with welding and um, heating metal and straightening it. And we actually spent um, a whole day, that's Matthew and Jim, we spent a whole day um, playing with Lucky and getting her straightened out and all of that sort of stuff. So, um, yeah, um, I was lucky. And um, silver linings. The other little off that I had was down to sheer stupidity. Um, I was introduced to barn quilt designs on in um, Ohio, uh, Kentucky, and Tennessee, and I gather there are a few in Virginia as well. And I sort of kind of noticed these as I'd been floating around in previous years, but not taken that much notice of them. So basically, what it is that there's um, a, a triangle or a diamond shape on the side of a barn, and it's in the quilt pattern. Um, and yeah, well, once I'd been introduced to these things, I started noticing more and more, but every single one that I came across was in the shade. So I couldn't get a good photograph, but then I found just this one that was in the sunshine and it was about, I don't know, 50 yards up somebody's drive and I didn't feel comfortable about going all the way up it. Um, you know, it's private property, but um, there was a, a sort of 10 yard section just before it hit the road and between their gate and the road. So I pulled off onto that and jiggery pokery the bike around and um, misjudged the camber. And the bike just went flop uh, straight down, um, upside down, pointing downhill on a very, very soft, grassy bit of verge. And I couldn't shift it at all. So I was standing there thinking, Sam, what an idiot you are. Why do you do this stuff to yourself? All for the sake of a photograph. <laughs> and... Then, um, and I'd hardly seen any traffic all day. And then this beat up old pickup truck that just could have come out of a, a, a movie started coming up towards the road to me. There was more rust than paint. And inside, I promise you this is true, there's a couple wearing dungarees and um, really beaten up hats. And he had a very straggly beard on and she had her hair in ponies in pigtails, plaits. And, well, of course, I flagged them down and they just gobsmacked at my English accent and, of course, helped me pick her up with comments about how heavy she is, et cetera, et cetera, and just kept on shooting me looks as if to say, geez, are all Englishmen as weird as you? <laughs> <laughs> they had no idea there's 200 books in there. Well, no, quite. It, the panniers were rather full of, of books. In fact, there wasn't a lot anything, of anything else in the panniers except for a bit of bubble wrap to stop them bouncing around too much. <laughs> um, so it serves me right. But yeah, well, these things happen. And a nice little story. And it just two goodness of people's stories to come out of those little events. Wow. I, I can't. I thought you were going to say it was the guy that hit you. That came up. That would have made it a great story. <laughs> was that <laughs> and he comes up yeah, to you and you really fall over? Been. Yeah, that would have been good. <laughs> wow, that sounds yeah, like quite well. a trip. I, I want to hear more about this, but, but, but let's let's bring Grant in. Grant sitting there uh, off to the side, listening to all of this. Grant is in British Columbia. Hello, Grant. Hello, everybody. Good to be back again. 
I can sympathize with Sam. I did something somewhat similar. Went park. I'm actually back on the bike, riding again after my wrist is yeah, 90, 95% healed. Wrist and thumb injury, mostly from skiing and whatever, who knows what else, but not from riding. Anyway, it's, it's better now. And finally, after three months off, I can actually get out and ride. And I was out riding on Friday, went to park the bike on dirt, dirt bike riding. So rough ground, went to park the bike. Thing was fine. Then I went to get back on it and the suspension sank just that little bit more than I had expected. And you know the feeling when you know you're going to fall over <laughs> and there's absolutely nothing you can do about it? Mm-hmm. Yep. I just watched myself fall. And of course, I'm falling on the right hand side and it's my right wrist. So I thought to myself as I went down, don't put your hand out. Don't put your hand out. Tuck and roll. Okay. I did a tuck and roll and it was all cool. Of course, if I had tucked and rolled one more roll, I would have been off a cliff, but we won't worry about that part. <laughs> yeah, because I do remember you saying last month, I think you said you, your plan was to tuck and roll. If you go down, you're tucking yes. and rolling. You're not stopping anything. Nope, not going to even try. Wow. And it worked perfectly. I was quite impressed with myself. You survived, but you're still pushing the envelope, aren't you? I mean, you're out there, you just got healed and you're already out there riding the dirt? Of course, spent three days out this, this last week. Mm-hmm. Two hours and then four or five hours and then another four or five hours. Wow. Good fun, riding safe, very carefully, not doing any tricky stuff, no single track, just well, two track that almost is single track, but it was okay. <laughs> and just being careful. Um, the wrist seems to be okay with it. You, know, you hit the odd nasty pothole and there's a bit of a jolt and it goes, ouch. But other than that, yeah, it's okay. It's okay. And it felt really good after three months of summer, not riding or kidding. Of course I'm going out riding. Mm. Yeah. Well, nice to hear that you're, you're healed up and you're back on the bike again. That's great. Uh, we I can hear the grin in your voice, Grant. Oh yeah. yes. I'm sure you can. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I've only did- got another... Was it 10 days to 12 days? Um, no, 17. I got 17 days. My insurance expires in November, the first week of November. Mm. I'm good for till then. You're not going to keep it on for the winter time? I mean, you can ride in the winter. Yeah, been there, done that. Yeah, My first that. five, six years riding from 16 to 21. Um, I rode every day because that was the only way I could get around. And I rode in the snow. I've got pictures of me on a 750 Norton in the snow and wrapped up and plastic bags on my hands to keep warm and stupid. And then I got married and she said, no, you're not doing that. We're getting a car. <laughs> it's not sensible. It's not safe. It's funny. I just looked through some, uh, some old files and I found videos of me uh, that, that I did of myself riding Vancouver Island in the snow. And you know, I still think it looks like fun. I'm yeah. still going. Can't do it now that we're in Ontario because the, the winters are more serious here. But winters on the coast, uh, I, I like to have the the bike on the road for most of the years. I didn't I didn't have it on all. I have to admit there was a couple of years there. I think lately that I didn't. But but in any case, it, let let me just say before we get going any further here, um, Michelle Lampfair is away. She's traveling, so she's not here for us for today. And Brian Ricks is riding his motorcycle as usual. He he's got some. Uh, he's I think he's got a meeting that he's going to. Surely was that it? But um, of course he's riding his bike. So really, it's about riding his bike. Yeah, he's going to a meeting in Canberra, so he'll ride all day today, get to Canberra tonight, have the meeting tomorrow morning, and then ride all the way home to be home tomorrow night. Right. So He's so, crazy. <laughs> well, I don't know about that, but so we're going to miss those two. 
But um, we have a, we have a lot that we're going to end up talking about. But before we do that, before we get into our topics, I want to hear about Iceland, Shirley. So what were you doing there and what was it like? Oh, Iceland is the most amazing country. We had the best time. We drove around it in a car for two weeks. We did the circumnavigation of the Ring Road with a detour up into the West Fjords. The landscape is just breathtaking, absolutely breathtaking, from beautiful grassy plains to mountains and basalt stacks and lava fields and black sand beaches. And they have a wonderful love of folklore. So we embraced the tales of elves and trolls and um, it was just absolutely spectacular. I, I couldn't, every day we got up and just loved every second of the time we, we were uh, we were traveling we did get stuck for the last three days there was a huge storm and the south um, southeast coast of Iceland was closed so we had to hunker down in a hotel for two and a half days but the most extraordinary thing is when you have a storm in Australia it's gray skies and it's raining and it's bleak this was clear blue skies but with hurricane force winds Ooh, wow. It was, yeah, it was incredible. And they just closed the road. There was no argument entered into as to whether you were only going 10 kilometres or you had a four-wheel drive. The road was just shut and no one was travelling. So it was uh, it was quite extraordinary. And the, there were two things I loved about Iceland. Um, one was the people who are just so friendly and being a lazy person with languages, they all speak English, so that made life very easy. But um, also their weather bureau has the normal forecast like we would have. They have the Aurora Borealis forecast. So they put up a map with where the cloud is and, and ratings from 1 to 10 as the likelihood to see the northern lights. Oh, that's neat. And they have the seismic activities forecast and while we were in the north, there was a seismic swarm just above us where they'd had 1,200 earthquakes in 24 hours. What? Wow. So I these know. are tiny little earthquakes. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, the whole island is volcanoes. And uh, there was an eruption about three weeks before we left, but the lava had stopped flowing by the time we got there. And the, the driver who picked us up at the airport to take us to the car just said, look, as long as the lava doesn't go down into the village, it's okay. <laughs> yeah. All right, fine. They're very, very um well, I suppose it's their life, isn't it? There's there's only three hundred thousand people on the island. Um and it's but it's steeped in history, but it's a very young island, even um ge geologically it's a very young island. But um there was there's an Australian book called Burial Rights, which is about a woman called Agnes who was the last person executed in Iceland. And we found her execution point. And that was quite um, amazing for Lee and I because it's one of our favourite books. But uh, I couldn't recommend it enough. We didn't see many bikes, but we were there at the end of the season. Um, probably in summer there would be bikes there. But it's very expensive to take your own car there. Everyone was in hire cars. Mm, I, I said the photos that I did see that you posted, you looked like you were dressed for cooler weather. Oh, it was cooler weather. Um, it was... Probably low teens most days, uh, but sometimes the wind was so strong. We had 
two-hand days where you had to take two hands to open the car door so it didn't swing back and rip off its hinges. And during the big storm, we had four-hand days where it took Lee and I, both of us together, to open the door from the hotel to get to the restaurant attached to the hotel for our meals. Wow. So the wind was so strong. That's really neat. And and you say it's fairly young because it's it's all evolving all the time. I guess if it's made of lava, it's, hey, if you think about it, I think it was Mark Twain who said, invest in real estate. They don't make it anymore. They actually do there. And in Hawaii, it's probably expanding <laughs> all the time. I think it probably is. But it's very beautiful. It's sometimes very stark and austere, but um, that in itself has its own appeal. And um, the the little towns we went into were – um, yeah, there were interesting museums on the maritime history and the the history of the um, the cod fishing and how they managed to to fish the the north North Atlantic out of cod around the island. Um, yeah, it it's it's a, a really interesting place and very different to anywhere we've been before. You know, it's it's interesting. You just mentioned about them fishing out the cod, which is a, a story we hear all over. And and humans are always saying about how something's an invasive species. We never seem to look at ourselves as an invasive species, but you hear that all the time. Oh. You know, fishing the the yeah. cod out, etc. But that's a depressing thought. But anyway, um, I'm curious. So, will you go back? Oh, I'd go back in a heartbeat. Oh yeah. I'm trying to convince Brian to go back next European summer. And come with me and and do it again. And ship I'd the bike every. No, oh. it's too expensive, Jim. Yeah. I mean, it, it it's like a thirty six hour ferry trip from Denmark to get a private vehicle there. Now I don't know what the insurance costs and things like that are, but by the time we get our bike to Europe, to then add that kind of um, added cost onto it, I think would probably make that aspect of it a bit too expensive and the ring road itself the main road that goes around the island is a sealed uh highway it's one lane each way so i don't know that it'd absolutely be thrilling on the bike and up in the western fields it's all dirt roads with lots of potholes and lots of gravel and it's a single track so it doesn't leave a much much room for um hiccups Mm. So we had we had great fun in the car and in with the weather um, and the wind and stuff. It was much more pleasant being in a car than I, I would, on the bike. I, I would know just think that though, is sacrilege. I, I don't believe that actually, but uh, I I think if you were <laughs> if you were trying to pitch Brian on that with the bike, I can see it happening. You know, it seems to me that that would be the the tipping point. Maybe, but he mm. was very jealous that I went. Oh, and, wasn't uh, and he uh, yeah and he didn't so I'm I don't think he'd actually take too much convincing if we were in Europe to to fly up there it's it's hideously expensive country because they have to import everything except um, lamb really mm. everything else is brought in and like fuel was three dollars the equivalent of three dollars twenty Australian per litre um, and. And wine was the equivalent of eighteen to twenty dollars per glass. Wow! So, and that's what you pay for a really good bottle of wine here. So, what's inexpensive there? Electricity. Yeah, well, power. It's yeah. it's um, it's all geothermal. You know, they're ninety eight percent pure energy. Um, so everything. But I, I don't know what the wages are, but I would imagine that they must um, have good wages because 
the restaurants were full and they weren't foreigners there. There were so many locals around and um, everyone was enjoying themselves. But I believe they preload on drinks before they go out. Because it's cheaper to have a couple of drinks at home than go and spend stupid money on a glass of wine with your dinner. Right. So while you're driving along in your hire car, your rental car, you have the radio on, of course. You must turn the radio on at some point. What's on the radio? What are they playing? We didn't listen to the radio. You're serious? You didn't turn on the radio? We listened to no, no. I'm sorry, Jim. It was a girl's trip. We talked. Oh, okay. Yeah, I guess we talked from Melbourne Airport until Frankfurt when we said goodbye three weeks later. So, wow. yeah, no, we didn't listen to the radio. So I'm sorry, I can't fill you in with that. And um, Icelandic television is in Icelandic, even though everyone speaks English. And a couple of times we had like BBC news and things like that. Hmm. And then I spent uh, five days in in Germany on the way home with uh, nice. with friends in Frankfurt, which was great. Hmm. Has anyone else, anyone here ridden a motorcycle in Iceland? No way. Eh? Wow. Oh. I, I, Birgit's ridden a bicycle there. What's it, you've ridden a bicycle? Birgit has. Oh, Birgit has. Oh, mm-hmm. that's neat. Yeah, the bicycle would make more sense, wouldn't it? I mean, it'd be obviously less to get over there. You wouldn't have to pay the vehicle fee, I'm assuming. No, I guess that that's about right. Yeah. Um, and of course, you need a tailwind, one of Shirley's winds, but from backside. Yeah, absolutely. So let's jump into our topics uh, for today. The, f- the first one is protecting your bling. Now, before we, we, do, we go very far into this, I just want to define bling for those maybe who are scratching their head and wonder, thinking, what on earth is he talking about? Is he using an Australian term that no one's ever heard of? No, it's not. <laughs> I was waiting for Shirley to jump in there. But um, anyway, Bling, it's a noun, expensive, ostentatious clothing or jewelry or the wearing of them. So for motorcycles, bling is all that expensive extra stuff that some of us love to have on our bikes, GPSs, cell phones and holders, auxiliary lights, I guess, fancy bags, racks, I mean, anything that looks expensive and adds to our sort of rich tourist look. The same goes for the rider, fancy riding suits, helmets, Cameras mounted off your helmets, um, gloves, you know, all that stuff that uh, that looks super expensive. You, you get the idea. That presents you as a, as a rich tourist slash rider look. With this bling, and we all have certain amounts of, amounts of it, whether it's your camera that you take with you, you know, no matter whether it's your bike. Um, I guess the bike isn't really the bling, but no matter whether it's your camera or other things that you're carrying with you, how do you protect it? Or better yet, maybe you maybe disguise it, if that's what you do, to tempt a, uh, a would-be thief. So um, what sort of bling do you guys carry? Sam, what sort of things would you consider bling that you're carrying? God, that's really difficult because I don't tend, when I'm traveling in developing world countries, to have very much at all. Um, I keep my bike as as sweet and simple as I possibly can. And the only um, bling really is um, a GPS or, or phone that works as a GPS. But that's about it. Everything else is just very normal and um, beaten up and tired looking and um, just doesn't look valuable. And I guess that's one of the the biggest things about it. If your stuff looks valuable, then you're putting temptation in people's way. Don't put temptation and people don't get tempted. But I think, you know, one of the keys with protecting your bike and the stuff that you are putting on it is a bike cover. Um, I mean, in the States, I'm, I'm riding, I've got some really nice Denali spotlights and I love these things. They they literally light up the world. 
And even in the daytime, I thoroughly enjoy using them. I've had cars, you know, pulling in from side turnings and the driver's obviously not paying attention. And then they suddenly see all this bright light coming towards them. And I've just seen the, the nose dips on them. Um, clearly you need one in the back facing backwards so pickup trucks can see you. And sideways. And sideways, um, yeah. And one on top of my head's probably a good idea as well. <laughs> um, maybe I just need to have this sort of halo effect. That would be good. Um, but yeah, I mean, other than that, I've got very, very little stuff on my bike. Um, so I'm probably not the right person to ask this. But yeah, bike cover. Um, if you can put it out of sight, then um, yeah, the temptation isn't there. Grant, how about you? What do you have that you consider bling? Well, always a GPS these days. Didn't used to carry a GPS. Well, I did have one, but it was in my pocket because it didn't mount on the bike because there was no such thing as a mount for a GPS on a bike. Um, now I have a GPS, but it's also on a quick remove mount. So I just take it off and stick it in the jacket pocket when I walk away from the bike. And and that's kind of it. I got my 1200GS has a couple of uh, auxiliary lights, but they don't look like much, and they're kind of beat up. In fact, one's got tape holding the lens on. And, and my thinking on most stuff is, if it's really valuable, why are you putting it on your bike? Is this either going to get stolen or it's going to get broken when you drop it? And notice I said when, not if. Um, try and remove and take as little valuable stuff. I think if you're if you're riding around your home country and you want to put all sorts of bling on it, that's kind of cool. And I enjoy it as much as anybody else. No doubt. I'm not seeing anything wrong with it. But when you're getting into third world countries and strange places and doing big trips, I think you want to be really, really careful about deciding what it is you're taking and why you're taking it. And do you need it as opposed to it's cool, so I want it. Mm. The, the less stuff you take, the better, and the, the more you reduce the stress of always worrying about your stuff. And a lot of people travel now with um, the equivalent um, GoPro or the equivalent, and more and more people travel with uh, mini drones and the cameras and all of that sort of stuff. So there is a fair bit um, that is turning into standard equipment for overlanding bikes. Mm-hmm. And yeah, they've just got to be quickly demountable and have a, a safe way of storing them when you get into a hotel room as, as well because you know hotel rooms camping sites they're all vulnerability places i mean to me though the, the greatest percentage of people have no ambition whatsoever to rob um but yeah if you put percentage in uh, you know temptation in people's way then there are one or two that might be tempted Mm. It's like a crash helmet, isn't it? I mean, d- expensive crash helmets. Do you leave your crash helmets just on the mirror and walk away while you pop in to, to pay for your fuel or just whip in to get a pack of sandwiches or something like that? Or do you take it with you or do you lock it to um, your handlebars? Mm-hmm. Um, Ken and Carol Duval had both their helmets taken. They had them chained to their bike and a bike cover over the bike and left it in the uh, car park at Iguazu Falls. And when they came back, the bike cover was perfectly tucked in, and when they lifted it up, their helmets were gone. Mm. Someone had come along and cut the cable and um, and taken both their helmets. Yeah. Well, okay. the thing is, you, you can only do so much, right? I mean, because that's always the, the, the thought process that I have, is that a thief really wants it. You're, you're not going to stop somebody from determining, whether it's at your home or whether, you know, off your bike or wherever. Yeah, no, exactly. it's the chances, isn't it? 
as I was traveling on this trip in the States, I was always locking my bike, even at motorcycle events. And quite a few people asked if I thought that Americans were, th- were, were thieves. And my response was, of course, no, but I habitually do this and I don't want to get out of the habit. So in other words, when I walk away from my motorcycle, I lock it. I have a D-lock. It takes me seconds to lock the bike and seconds to unlock it. And it is just something that automatically happens. And again, as Jim, you just said, if there's somebody who's really determined, then they'll they'll still get away with the bike, but it's putting the opportunists off. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, it is literally just getting into a habit. So you don't even think about doing it. It's just there. And I mean, the difference between the US and the UK is many parts of the UK, if you left your bike un- unlocked for 15 minutes, it'd be gone when you got back. Um, it's, um, yeah, it's, it's not mm-hmm. clever here. I mean, I still know plenty of people in the US who don't lock their bikes at all. They'll park them up outside a hotel, don't even put the steering lock on. They'll leave all of their, you know, their bags and boxes and everything else on the back of the bikes. And to my delight, almost nothing goes missing. Mm-hmm. Shirley, what's it like in Australia? Uh, you'd, you'd lock the bike. And, and we've got a, um, a Touratech lock for the GPS. So it's actually locked on to the, to the, to the bike. Um, it, look, we have a terrible rate of, of bike thefts here. But it's it's like anywhere. There are parts of Australia where it's as safe as houses, and you know people go out and leave their front door open and wouldn't think anything of it. And other places where you have to turn your back for twenty seconds and everything's gone. Yeah, yeah. I think that's kind of the same here as well. Is that um, there would be places? I I think for the most part, I see I see a lot of people certainly around our area parking their vehicles and leaving them wide open. You know, and uh, motorcycles getting off and leaving helmets there either on the bike, I've even seen them sitting on the ground beside the bike. Um, they just don't worry about it, but we're not in a city. So I don't know, like in the city, it seems like there's more opportunity there. Just, just more people, more density per, per square kilometer, obviously. So, um, I think the chances are higher of running into an issue then. God, Jim, I used to carry a chain on my motorcycle and I'd feed it through the back wheel and through the shaft and then through the chin piece on my helmet. Um, when my helmet got peed on a couple of times by dogs, I stopped doing that anymore. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gee, up over the seat and put the helmet on the seat. Yeah, I learned my lessons the hard way. I have a, I have a small cable that I very rarely use that I made up myself, just a tiny cable, and it's more of a deterrent cable. So if I'm if I'm going to leave my helmet um, on the bike then I'll just run the cable through and I've got a tiny little lock and I'm sure it'd be easily broken with a, you know, a pair of pliers sort of in a lever or something, but it's just something to deter the honest thief and my helmet's not worth that much money. So if they steal it, I'll be ticked off and, and put out and, and certainly inconvenience, but it won't be the end of the world. And the longer it takes them to get something off your bike, the less likely they are to take it. Yeah. Good point. If they can just walk past and pick up your helmet and keep going, that's going to be a lot easier. But if then they have to get out cutters and try and cut the chain and work out where it's flipped through, they're going to attract someone's attention. Yeah. Yeah. It's a whole different uh, operation then. It's not just a, a grab and, and walk off. It's you've got to, mm. you got to get much more in depth. Mickness, um, how about, how about you guys? Do you, do you have a lot of bling or are you carrying, I mean, you must be carrying, you know, your cell phones and GPS. Is that mounted to your bikes? So, Yes, we have the GPS, and as uh, Shirley said, we also use the the, the Touratech um, lock. But that said, I mean, you know, if they want to steal it, like everybody else said, if they want to steal it, they're going to steal it. And, and our perception is that bikes are not uh, um, secure for, for starts, so we treat it like that. But um, 
we do carry quite a bit of valuables. I mean, uh, we've got a, a, a good laptop each. We've got Mechnus's very expensive camera. We've we've got um, a GoPro. I think we generally just try and be very careful where we park the bikes. And if we, for instance, like uh, you mentioned, Iguazu Falls, we would, in a case like that, actually rather leave the motorcycles at a secure parking uh, at the place that we're staying instead of leaving it in a parking lot. Uh, so we, we generally try and just be careful um, of where we do park the motorcycles. Mm. But it's quite right. You have to be, you have to be, clever about it. Even here in South Africa, we've got similar to what Shirley is saying, that some areas you could leave your stuff on the motorcycle and walk away. Other areas, no, 15 minute, minutes later you'll come and it, it, it will all be gone. So so the other thing is also that the helmet, for example, it's not it's not that they steal the helmet. It's an inconvenience and, and maybe you're, you're in a country like South Africa where you're getting, you, you can get in really deep trouble if you ride without a helmet. So now we steal your helmet somewhere. You have to ride to a place to go look for a helmet without one, and you're going to get in trouble for sure. There's just no place about it. Mm. Also, like, like in places like South Africa or North Africa, they will steal something that's very valuable and sell it for $2 because that $2 is more important than the, what they have. So they don't care for the value of the thing. And just just because of that, we, we never show any of our... If, if it looks... Dodgy, we will not take out a camera, we will not take out any value. So, I mean, we don't carry expensive watches. I've, the other day, I heard of a group of um, four by four overlanders, and they were wearing Panerai watches. I mean, people don't know one Panerai watch is, is incredible, a lot of money. Not that the locals probably know it, but it's still it's an incredible lot of money to, to, to wear on the wrist going to places like Africa. You know, it's, it, it boggles the mind. And then, for example, like our laptops, we've got stickers all over it. If we if we go into a hostel, I just don't take the thing out. I just don't want people to know that we even got it. The same as with, with GoPros and stuff. If it looks like a place where we rather not take out any valuables, we just don't take it out. Mm. Yeah, and I, I guess the same as spewing everything out too, mm-hmm. like on a table or anything like that. You wouldn't want to sit there and pull out all your GoPros and your computer and, and all your equipment right. if you're in a place where you don't know who's there. And unfortunately, Jim, it is a case where um, a lot of the time you hear of people being robbed, staying in their hostel, and it isn't going to be the locals who are stealing their stuff. Mm-hmm. It's other travellers. Right. Yeah, surely that, that is very, very true, and it's, it's a very sad, sad indictment. It, it actually, if you're going to get robbed in a, in a hostel, it's probably one of the travellers. Or at a campsite. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I was going to mention about parking, you know, because we talked about sort of parking at a trailhead or, or parking back at the hotel. And I always consider trailheads to be somewhat risky. Do, do you guys get that as well? I mean, just about anywhere you are, because there's that feeling of it's remote. You're off on a trail. You're probably going to be, you know, hours and somebody can come in and spend some time with your bike without anybody around. Uh, if it's a, if it's a, a trailhead where there's, where there's um, a lot of people movement all the time where People will see other people. We'll probably take a chance in in uh, Peru at uh, that one glacier. Um, we had there was a lot of people there around, and what we did was we, we had to leave the bike. We had no choice to go look at the glacier, and we went to one of the little vendor uh, ladies that was sitting there 
close to where our, our motorcycles was parked and we, we asked can, can we leave our helmets and jackets and everything with you and you can just look after the, the motorcycle we'll, we'll give you some money for it and she was happy to to do that for us not to say I mean if you really um, bad about it you would say yeah but she'll steal, she'll steal the money and the stuff and then back up and go but I mean generally you know some, sometimes you get a feeling for, for where you can do stuff like that or where not we, we also right. tend to uh, have a little carrot and if there is crafters or vendors there um, indicate or even buy something from them and uh, in either say keep it or say when I come back I will pay you for all of this so there's an the incentive for them to, to sort of help keep, you out I like that yeah, that's yeah, no, that that works. Um, I really like doing this as well. It's it's such a good thing. And if you're thinking about it, um, the vendors they're coming there every day, and so if somebody does pinch something, well, they're very easily identifiable. If you do go to the trouble of reporting it to the police, and most of these people, they they they're just not interested in stealing from you. They're just interested in doing their thing, making a living, and. Um, they want you to uh, to have a good time in their countries. Um, so they're just, yeah, they're really helpful and they're really kind. And of course, there is that nasty little bit of suspicion in the back of your mind, isn't there? Um, you guys mentioned it just now, but actually, no, you treat them with respect and do something that helps them. And they'll help you. Does anyone disguise their stuff? Does anyone, because if somebody had told a story, maybe it was you, Sam, that told a story of somebody buying a camera and scratching the the outside of the lens all up to, to make it look old. Was it you that mentioned that? Um, yeah, I met a, a guy who had bought a new camera and he was very conscious that of how blingy it looked. So um, he just um, got some, um, some sandpaper and gave it a good old scrape on the outside, um, roughed it up a little bit, stuck some strips of, of duct tape on it. And yeah, he had made his um, new camera look as if it was ancient and beat up. And I thought, what a sound idea. And he'd taken off the <laughs> manufacturer's neck strap from it as well. So where it um, it would have said Canon or Nikon or whatever it was, he had just um, a strap that didn't have um, an expensive brand name on it, and I just thought thought that was common sense too. That's a that's a really good point, and and I I did hear some laughter in there in the background about that. But I'm thinking, wouldn't that be a great way to disguise your new BMW? You get it like if you're going to take an R1200 or something like that, or, yeah. or or your Ducati or something like that. That's the best thing to do. Like drop it, drag it, push it down in the dirt, really beat it up, and nobody's going to want it. Come on, Jim. Now, you, now you've worked out no, my finishly cunning master plan. This is why I fall off a lot. It's on purpose. You know? <laughs> yeah. We we stuck um, beer beer um, labels on our on our BMW. Uh, well, they stole our BMW labels in um, Ethiopia. They, they broke it off the off the bike just to get the BMW the labels badges. The badges. Oh, they stole you. The, what do they call them? They call them roundels, don't they? Yeah, the roundels. Yeah. 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 They stole those um, off your bike, it, but they left a, your bike. It, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's well, a souvenir. Yeah. And so what I do is I, I stick on my laptop. I stick um, stickers all over it, so nobody can see it. So it's an Apple, and the, the plastic cover on the outside looks a bit worn. Um, my my my. my oh, here's the other thing: uh, cameras. People's got specific bags for cameras. I never ever use that. It uh. screams money. You're so talking. Are you talking a form bag to, with the, like the logo on it and stuff? 
Correct. Yes, those yeah. those nice bags where they pack all their lenses and stuff. We never do that. I don't even want to see that it's some fancy because it screams there's a lot of money there. And so I take my camera out, put it in my hand with my wrist strap, maybe put a, a black sleeve over it, and that's how I use it. So it doesn't it doesn't even look like you're carrying a camera in your hand. What other kind of things do you, do you guys do to to sort of disguise or hide or keep things um, safe that you're taking with you? Just staying on the subject of cameras, um, uh, for most of the round the world trip, um, actually from year one, I had a, a shoulder bag made out of army Ethiopian army surface truck canvas, and this thing was was so thick. That you know, you you took a, a Stanley knife and and um, gave it a good scrape with a, a sharp blade, and it 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 didn't even dent this stuff. And in the shoulder strap, I had um, some guitar strings woven in. And the beauty of this was, I used to just hide my camera down inside that. I'd got some foam blocks to protect it, so I would just stick it nose down into the into the foam foam blocks. But the, um, the 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 guitar strings in the in the shoulder um, strap stopped that being slashed and grabbed, and the canvas. Well, the trick of that was that you couldn't slash it, um, you know, with somebody with sticky fingers walking behind you, and that was at the time a common thing that was going on. Um, the pickpockets and so on, they would just cut your bag with a really sharp knife um, from behind, and you didn't even notice, and they would pull stuff out. Um, so it was really simple and really cheap and a, another great souvenir. And we can all do that sort of stuff. But what Mickness said just now about not carrying a posh camera bag, absolutely right. You look as if you're carrying bling and people will look. They'll take notice. It's another reason why I write um, a paper journal, which I just have in my leather pouch, because then I'm not sitting down or standing in a cube or wherever else it is um, with an iPad or a laptop because, yeah, you're flashing your bling. Mm, yeah. Speaking of your, um, I think so. That you had, Sam. The you can actually get one ready-made for you now. Everybody knows of the PackSafe cargo net, the the, mm -hmm. the metal net. Um, it's a longtime favorite, but they've added many goodies to their catalog. They now make bags, packs, camera bags, um, waist and sling packs, etc., with steel cable reinforced shoulder straps and even what they call slash guard, which is a steel wire mesh in the fabric of the bag. Mm -hmm. They're really hard to cut. I always wondered why they didn't do that. I, I think we even talked well, about that before, some maybe a couple of years ago. They've got all kinds of it now. Well, I couldn't neat. believe it. Sam's got a, a very valid point there with the bag and the bag sort of disguise um, the valuable. And there was a... Uh, I think a while ago in the Netherlands that they did uh, an action where they would actually leave a car with the car doors open with the key in and they would have another car that's locked up and they would have a look at how people would react seeing this and I actually read a bit up on it and, and it boils down to that if people perceive there's something valuable then they want to look at it or they want it but if somebody just leaves a car door open and uh, walk away, they're like, no, this is a trick. Something is wrong. <laughs> so it's similar with your bike. If you faff around your bike the whole time and you're so worried versus you getting off your bike, being relaxed, walking away, I think it's also the perception of, you know, what have they got to hide? 
Yeah, you don't look like you're tucking it. Oh, that makes that that makes a lot of sense, you know, on a lot of levels. That, that, you know, it's funny because I made that that little silly joke about you know destroying your bike or dragging your bike and 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 making a mess of the bike. What about stickers on your bike? D- doesn't that kind of um, I mean, that's kind of like putting stickers all over your laptop as well. It, it sort of first of all, it makes it very unique and and very difficult to put anywhere without being obvious that it, um, it's a special bike. You know, it's going to be easily spotted. The other thing is, it kind of makes it look in many people's eyes kind of crappy, doesn't it? Yeah, second hand. <laughs> yeah. One of the simplest things with um, shoulder bags and backpacks and that sort of stuff um, is, of course, whenever you're in a crowded place, work, walk along with your backpack in front of you. Don't keep it slung over the over your shoulders. You can't see it when it's behind you, but you can see it when it's in front of you. But this is a, a neat little trick, and we've been using this for years. We've just got um, an extra um, foot of uh, web strap, uh, you know, a webbing with a couple of... Um, rucksack clips on either end and when we sit down in a cafe or a bar or something like that we just hook the bag through part of the chair and that means that um, the people who you know the the opportunists the snatch and grab people they're not going to get it easily and it's just such a simple little thing to do and on the old two uses rule having that extra bit of webbing strap means you've always got the chance to use it to strap your coat to the outside of the bag or something like that if it stops raining or gets too hot so it's um yeah simple little thing to do Sam, you, you've done a lot of um, backpacking, uh, I know, and, and bicycle riding. Did you ever lock mm. your bags and things like that to uh, like a chair or a luggage rack or, or something so it wasn't stolen if you drifted off to sleep? Oh, absolutely. Traveling on the train. I always used to carry, um, uh, it was actually two yards long, um, piece of um, uh, wire, which was plastic covered. And I'd made loops on either end of it. And I used to put my rucksack on the, the luggage carrier and just feed this through. And I had a, a very impressive looking padlock, um, which um, locks it on. And I would always put that padlock very visibly, um, just trying to give the idea that, well, if the padlock is going to be that good, then the, you know, you're not going to be able to cut through the wire. Um, and I used to do that on trains, um, on buses, even when my luggage was going on the roof on a bus, then uh, my rucksack would be um, clipped into place with that. I'd rather stand on the bus and have my rucksack safe on the roof rack. Um, so yeah, um, frequently. Mm-hmm. LSB, you were saying about a, a cell phone case. I said it's similar uh, to having your laptop or something stickered up. It's the same with a cell phone. The the biggest uh, places where they would steal a cell phone is just quietly walking past your table, grab the phone, and act like it's their own phone. But that is something they can't do if your phone is easy identifiable. Uh, you know, maybe in a bright case or stickered or something like that. Mm, yeah. Just don't take it out anywhere. Just, just, just don't take it out. Yeah. <laughs> We don't drag everything with us, you know. Leave the stuff, leave the stuff in the room. There's no, there's no need to drag everything with you. Yeah, I'd like to keep it simple. I mean, we go back to the old mugger's wallet that we've talked about lots of times, which has your absolute minimum in it. And if somebody tries to rob you, well, you give them your mugger's wallet. And I'm like Mickness, I just keep cash in a pocket. I actually keep a little bit of cash in one pocket that's for you know, maybe buying lunch or a little knickknack or whatever, and I keep a little more money in another pocket somewhere else or even in my shoe. Um, but not so not a lot of money anywhere, and the small amount of money is what somebody might see. It's readily visible. Yeah, but he's only got a few dollars in his pocket. It's not worth robbing him. Um, and you never put a wallet in a back pocket because that's just 
way too easy for the, the bump and lift type pickpocket. Um, I use a button down shirt pocket too to put a little bit of cash in. And I try to avoid um, a backpack because that's on your back. And I've had the experience of somebody slashing my pack. They didn't get anything because they didn't make enough of a slash and I noticed it. But it's still, it's very risky. So I always use um, a hip pack, bum bag, waist pack, whatever you want to call it. And wear it in the front. Makes it much safer, more secure. And I'm not carrying a lot of stuff. So I obviously don't have a lot of stuff to steal. It's not like, oh, he's got a pack. It's got full of stuff. It's going to be, it's worth my while to grab it. It's just a small bag with you know, a bottle of water or something hanging off it. And that's it. So keep it simple. Don't look like you've got a lot of stuff. I think it's really important. Yeah, um, I agree. I used to carry um, a lot of my stuff in um, um, a money belt and um, have that around my front, not in my back, because that's too easily grabbable. And I've seen so many people who who carry their money about to the back because it's actually more comfortable. Grant, you mentioned wallets there, and this is interesting because a lot of guys carry their wallets in their back pocket. And yeah, it seems to be the, no. one of the most common spots to carry it. Where where do you guys carry your, your wallets? Where, where are those, especially for the guys? I, I mean, my, my wallet is quite thin. I have two cards because we're poor, so we don't keep a lot of stuff for his <laughs> 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 And the other the other things I do is I'm like a real um, uh, Sturgis guy. I've got a, a, a little line yard with a, a proper carabiner onto the onto my wallet. We hook that thing. If it's going to a little backpack, we hook it in there. If it goes into my pocket, I try and hook it into um, somewhere on the pouch, somewhere on the pouch, so it doesn't just fall out. Or and if somebody just per accident. It's not just a quick uh, hook off, but it's also a safeguard for me that I don't just lose it or it falls out of your out of your pocket or or bag. Which or happened anything, before? Which happened before? Yeah, yeah, yeah that's embarrassing. Yeah, the other thing I do with the uh, with the bum bag or hip pack is like Sam's got an extra strap. I just put my leg through the whole thing and leave it leave the bag hanging on my leg. So somebody's going to take me in order to steal it. Mm. Much simpler, and it's. Yeah. Just a habit I do. I mean, I do it at home. I go out to a restaurant. If I've got a bum bag on me, then it just goes around my leg. I don't leave it lying on a chair. Or anything like that. that's just I mean, that's, that, that's such, a, such a good thing. It's such an important point. None of this is paranoia, but they're all really good habits to get into. And the, yeah. I, I think the point is, if you start to do these sorts of things even before you leave on a trip, then they'll be automatic when you're out there. And most of the time, you'll just be doing these things on autopilot. And all the sort of give me peace of mind things. And if you aren't acting paranoid, then you have all the opportunities to see and get involved with opportunities, don't you? Yeah, very, very true. What what about the little uh, the little scams that uh, that you you run into where people are doing stuff to distract you? Has, has anyone had that happen? Has anyone had somebody come up? Because I've read about things like um, somebody will come up and hand you a baby to hold, basically, and then they're they're fleecing you at the same time. Or or I think Sam, you'd mentioned about I think you'd you'd said one time about a bird poop or or something on you. Yeah, was, that's right. That that's another. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> they they have something that looks like bird poop. So you know, quite often bird poop is white. Um, and they'll just flick something on you and then um, rush over and say, oh, mister, mister, look, the bird got you. Let me wipe it off for you. And so while they're sort of um, pushing and shoving and wiping off and all the rest of it, 
your pockets are being roundly cleaned as well, but from the insides. Like you got to have a chuckle. I mean, some of it's pretty ingenious. Like when, when I read some of these things, I think, wow, you know, that, that's uh, that's really good. And and of course, you've heard the ones about um, uh, males traveling by themselves and, and a woman comes up and convinces them that they take her for a drink and, and they get fleeced that way. There's all kinds of little scams. So uh, first of all, maybe i answer that first question. Has anyone had that? Has anyone been scammed like that? Or dare you tell the story? Well, I'm st- I'm still sitting with Elspin now. I mean, she scared me 25 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> That's a long-term scam. That's something different. That's because we're, we're not talking about that. Yeah. <laughs> I really don't know who's getting scammed <laughs> there. <laughs> just, a, just a quick one in Ethiopia and that is Ababa. The little kids have um, small boxes of sweets and cigarettes and uh, matches in and what they it was like they when it, it's quite busy. They they bump into you all the time, and they bump into your pockets. And or they try and sell one, try and sell, and they push their little box sort of into you in the front, and then their little friend is sort of don't do that, don't do that, and while they pickpocket, trying to pickpocket you. Oh. But we we saw it coming, so we just sort of pushed them away, and there was a, 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 a tourist police guy close by, and he immediately escorted them away. So. And that's good. You you obviously shoved them away and that was effective for that. But how do you avoid those type of things? I mean, there's other swarming uh, scams that, that people pull apparently a lot of times with kids actually that, that I've read about where kids will come up and, and do a bit of a swarm and and, uh, and you know, they're scamming you. They're, they're fleecing your pockets while they're distracting you. How do you avoid that in particular when you're in a crowd? You're not allowed to to slap them anymore. That's the problem. <laughs> no, we just don't carry anything in our pockets. We will have all our valuables either, like Mechna said, the wallet is attached with a little string in his pocket. So even if they take the wallet out, he will immediately feel the tug. Mm-hmm. Um, as for the rest, if we if we carry something, I will have a, a little backpack, and if we're in a crowd, the backpack will just quietly come and be in front so that I can hold it closer. So just mm. being aware. I think you have to be aware that when you're getting into a crowded situation, you've really got to be extra aware. And if suddenly somebody mm. bumps you, that is immediately suspicious. Yeah. You see a bunch of kids heading your way, that's suspicious because they wouldn't normally come around mm. and try and talk to you or whatever. It's just not normal. They're generally... If they're real and they really do want to talk mm-hmm. to you, they're going to be much more circumspect and they're going to be shy. They're going to be much more careful. But if all of a sudden they're all over you, you know that they're trying to rob you. There is no question about it. So it, it's a lot of it is just about being very aware, situational awareness, what's going on, what's normal, what seems a little off, um, and just being aware of that. And that can can help a lot so you can avoid it. And I think part of it is looking like you are aware, you're used to the place, you're comfortable, you're not just any old tourist. If you look like you are completely, um, what's the word, like you're a local, you know where you're going, you know what you're doing, they're not going to bother with you. They they want the, the no. uh, tourist who's wandering around in a daze and kind of overwhelmed by it all. If you look like you know what you're doing, they're much less likely to try and rob you. Mm-hmm. Oh, I totally agree with you. Yeah, and it's it's like um, you, you you catch a train, 
and you're in another country and you come out of the railway station or, or for example, you come out of the airports and the first thing you do as a tourist who's a bit wet behind the ears is that you get your map out and you're sort of standing there um, making yourself really obviously, I don't know where I'm going and what I'm doing. And you might as well have a spotlight shining on you saying, yep, um, target me. Um, but, yeah, you know, you, be, you, uh... exactly. I mean, if you've got any sense, then you've worked that out um, at least to get five streets away. And when five streets away, then, of course, you can get your map out. You know roughly where you are because you've looked at it before. And um, you can just very discreetly um, look at your map and then off you go again. And the other thing is, is while you're looking at your map or your, or your phone and trying to figure out where you are, you're standing there with all your bags around you with nothing fastened to you. So it's easy, mm-hmm. to, it's easy prey. Yeah. And you're, yeah, you're not focused on your bags and stuff. You're focusing on, on, on where you want to go. And mm-hmm. the next moment you look around, all your bags are gone. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I like to find, if I'm feeling a little bit overwhelmed or I've got a lot of stuff like that, I'll look for the nearest sidewalk cafe or someplace where I can sit down, preferably with my back to the wall. Mm-hmm. And get myself comfortable, secure, relaxed, de-stressed, and I can figure out what I'm doing in my own good time. And that's just you know, it, so much easier. Yeah, yeah. Um, just to get on, onto that, Grant, you're 100% right in Ethiopia that we, we, stayed, we, we travel there quite a bit. And there's a lot of places where um, some of the cities you have to be very focused because there's two or three people watching you all the time. One will come up to you, start chatting to you. It can help you. You're obviously lost, but you're not focusing on the other two or three standing around you and they're very um, dodgy and stuff. And the next moment, man, (laughs) stuff is gone. Yeah, we, we even had in Ethiopia where they would follow you and then all of a sudden if you pay for something at a shop, the the price is a little bit different to what you remember or what you've seen, then they all of a sudden have become a fixer. You're just not a, you're just not aware of it. Oh right. They're overcharging. Correct. Yes, because mm-hmm. they they uh, deem they would say that they brought you into the shop and they need commission, so that commission comes out of your pocket. Oh yeah, like that sort of. Thing. And, and I read about another one like this sort of thing where they'll come up and they'll ask if you can help them do a demonstration, and they they build a, a friendship bracelet on your wrist, and it, and it's on mm. your wrist, so it's not easily to t- easy to take off, and then they tell you they want you to pay for it. So those type of things to play yes. on your emotions yeah. where you feel obligated. It's not so much they're stealing from you, but they're, they're, they're tricking you into it. Yeah. I have, to, I have to say that when, when I'm traveling, I find these things thoroughly entertaining and I, I really quite enjoy watching them happen. Um, because, you know, after a while, you just get tuned into it, don't you? The stories that the Mignus and Elsabu are, t- are telling just now. I'm sitting here with a big grin because after you've seen them happening a few times, you look out for them and they're actually really entertaining because these guys are clever. Um, of course, if you lose out, then they're not yeah. quite so clever. <laughs> yeah, you, see, you see them a mile away. Yep. Yeah, and the, and, and the other thing is that sometimes it, it's like Sam said, you, you, it's entertaining. And then sometimes you know you have to be very assertive and, and, and get angry and like, you know, to take the thing off and shove it in the, in the, in the hand, say, go away. You know, it's a scam. They would go away. In a, At the Louvre in, in, in France, the guy would come up to you, the next, just bent over uh, in front of you, pick up, make as if he picks up a ring and say, oh, you lost this. That's where the scam starts. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I read about that. He's, and then, then he identifies it as being expensive. Look, it's solid gold. And then, and then next thing you know, he's trying to sell it to you. Yeah. 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 Um, the other thing is, is, is that I was reading is that um, it's more likely for travelers to lose something than actually have it stolen. And, and, and we talked about establishing routines, like Sam had said there uh, about establishing routines, and that will certainly help mitigate that problem. But, but some of the things you could do is, I mean, you could put a, um, you know, make sure you label your stuff, like your phone or whatever, with a, a note on it, with an email or something like that, just so on the off chance that it is just you lost it and somebody finds it. Do you have a chance of getting it back? I always put a label inside any bag I've got and the label always says on it, my phone number and contact details and reward for return. Mm. I've never had it. I've never lost anything that's been returned like that, but that's okay. Better to be prepared. Just to come back to the labels, Grant, that's a really good idea. Up until now, what we've done is just we have little stickers made with Picky Picky and our website on it. And we ensure that uh, our valuables have got a sticker inside or somewhere so that people can see, uh, you know, it belongs to somebody. Yeah, but the catch with, uh, I was just thinking with Picky Picky on it there, that's great. But that's just like another website that's a, a brand, a label, whatever. It doesn't say, this is mine. Would you please return it to me? There's mm. a difference. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, Grant, we, yeah, you're right. And it, it, I like your idea. And it's funny, we even in South Africa, we had a guy that lost his bag. And uh, because it was our brand, they contacted our head office and say, I'm not sure if I'm taking a long shot, but somebody lost a bag, your brand, with their stuff in. Can you help us trace them? <laughs> and luckily for them, we could actually help. That was Canada to speak. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Uh, the one thing I was going to ask as we were talking about wallets is I was going to say, um, are, are women carrying purses or, or what are you doing with your wallet? And, and surely I was, I was hoping that, that you would have some input here. Uh, well, Brian always calls a handbag a thief attractor. So he's not very fond of me taking, taking a bag. But um, my bike pants have pockets in them, but just about every other outfit I own don't have pockets. So I always have to carry a bag and I'm just um, aware of it that people can try and, and drag it off your shoulder. I don't wear jewellery when we're travelling either. I've got a cheap watch and um, I leave my, um, except my wedding ring, everything else stays at home. Mm. A cheap watch, that's uh, that's another one that's uh, important. Like Mickness had mentioned, the expensive watch, you're going around, it's just sort of advertising. That's easy to forget too. I mean, if you're used to wearing high-end stuff and you don't really think much of it, <laughs> I don't have that problem. But I mean, uh, if, if some people are used to it, then um, uh, it would be easy to forget. Yeah, you have to think about what you're taking. Surely, is it true that um, what Brian said about you carrying a brick in the bottom of your handbag? Because... Um, that makes it the perfect weapon for muggers. God, he's a he's a card, isn't he? God, um, I'm, putting words, I'm putting words in his mouth. <laughs> I do tend to, uh, at home. I do tend to carry a fair bit of crap in my bag. I will admit that. But um, whether it could be used as a weapon, actually, it probably could, Sam. To think about it, and I may actually use it to give my husband a fair decent belt across the back of the head. No, don't do that because it was me. He'll never forgive me. <laughs> One thing that uh, Shirley's comment there about the Brian, whoever's comment about the brick in the purse is a good weapon. 
don't forget, if you're carrying your helmet, that's a wonderful weapon if you need it. Mm. That will take somebody mm. right out. Don't be afraid to hang on to the mouthpiece and give it a good swing. Don't take somebody down. <laughs> yeah, that takes us down a whole do, whole new uh, route, though, because um, yeah. you, you do that, and I mean, that can be taken a different way. And after the fact, I mean, if you hurt somebody or if you really injure somebody, then you have some explaining to do. Well, we hope not. Yeah. One thing, Jim, that everyone's been talking about is disguising. You've got a camera and disguising you've got a laptop and trying not to look conspicuous. The fact that, that we are traveling on motorcycles with international registration or we're walking out of an airport arrivals lounge or off a train, we're obviously tourists. Mm-hmm. So really, I mean, you've got, to, you've got to keep your wits about you, but um, we're always going to stand out in a crowd. A lot of the countries we've ridden through, they don't see bikes like ours every day. Their locals don't ride the big adventure bikes. So they're always going to know we've got we've got something there that they may want. So you just have to be sensible about it. But um, mm-hmm. yeah, taking a lot of precautions is a good idea, but we're always going to look like foreigners and we're always going to look like travellers with money. So in the end, really what you've got to do is you've got to do everything you can to, to you know, hopefully prevent any sort of problem or do your best. But if you get ripped off, you've got to have, I guess, two things. One, be prepared to let that thing go because it's already gone anyway. So that's with you, you know, your choice of whether you can wear your $20,000 wristwatch and be comfortable if that gets stolen or you want to slip it out for a Casio. And the other thing is just the whole attitude about it. I mean, I think Sam said this maybe a couple of years ago when we were talking about, because Sam, you, you got your, your camera ripped off and I know it had some very valuable photos to you on it. And it really made you angry, but at a point you've got to say, okay, well, I mean, it's done and just let it go. Don't let it ruin your vacation. Oh, absolutely right. I mean, I had um, 35 shots just of Libby in unusual places, you know, like a a couple of Buddhist monks sitting on the back of her and, you know, shots like that. Mm -hmm. And I was really upset that I'd lost this thing. It was my own sheer stupidity. I put it down where I shouldn't have done and it went. But then I did everything possible that I could to get it back, a reward offered, reports to the police and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I didn't get it back. And of course I was upset. But at the same time, then I started to think, yeah, well, somebody's going to feed their family with this. I hope they um, manage to sell it enough to give them several weeks worth of food Um, because that's all you can do. There's no way I was going to let it um, upset me for the rest of the journey and get in the way. And there was no way it was going to make me um, paranoid because the simple fact was I was careless just for that one moment. And I just happened to be unlucky enough to find that there was an opportunist standing waiting for an opportunity. And that's so often what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, you've got to be philosophical then and move just to, on uh, just yeah. to get on to that Sam so in our village in, in Gnubi where we stay in East London it's not a small place but it's, it's big and they, they had a bicycle uh, traveller there and he, he carelessly left his bicycle uh, at a wall somewhere and they, they stole it but because it's such a unique bicycle it, it, people started chatting put it on Facebook uh, the police got involved and they got the bicycle back quite quick because so a lot of the out-of-town places, if it's not a city where things just get sucked up and, and it's gone, if you're in small places, and like in the uh, uh, Fort um, Portal in, in Uganda, we stayed there with, with other travelers and uh, they figured out the, the uh, hard drive and the, and the flashlight was, was gone. But the police and the, and the community found it within a few days because it's such 
unique stuff that is not there every time. So when people there steal stuff, it's actually you can actually get it back if you have a bit of tenacity to try and do it. Uh, Tolga, um, he, he lost two hard drives full of photos somewhere in Peru. Uh, it's in remote area. He got onto the uh, the people there, the police. They went into the the local radio stations. They started asking people, and lo and behold, a month later, they actually got the the, um, wow. the hard drives back. So, so in small little places where stuff, funny stuff gets lost, that's not normal. Probably, if you if, if you're lucky enough and keep on asking and asking and asking, you'll probably get it back. But I I agree with you, Sam, is that you you must be able to walk away and be okay with whatever you've got with you that you might lose it. Um, if something is so valuable for you, it should not be on your travels. Um, our photographs, for instance, is valuable for us, and it's not always possible to upload it to the cloud. So we will make sure we've got three backups. One will be uh, as far as possible with us, one with our passports and one on the motorcycle. So it's, again, just taking care and being aware that it should be all right for you to be able to walk away from any of your valuables. Yeah, absolutely. And this is one of the, for example, using your photographs, this is one of the beauties of digital photography, isn't it? Because we can back them up. Um, and that's fantastic. Right. When when Micken was just talking about Fort Portal just now, you started me thinking about um, Uganda and Kampala and also Penang. Because if you get something stolen, the chances are if you go down to the market the next day, and in Kampala there actually is a thieves market, um, the chances are that you'll find your goodies on a stall somewhere there and you can just buy them back the next morning. Uh, mm. And yeah, there's, there's, there's no sort of acrimony or anything else like that. It's just the way the business is done. So you might as well chill, take a walk down to the market and buy a bunch of bananas while you're there. <laughs> yeah, you know the, the the most valuable thing is your motorcycle, and that's that's why we keep on telling people. Is, I mean, take the bike that you like, and and this, and this is a whole debate on its own. But I would rather walk away from our DR, and I've got very very big sentimental value for them. But if you take a quarter ton, twenty thousand, thirty thousand dollar brand new bike, you're going around the world, and that thing gets for some reason stuck at a border, Egypt, wherever. You have to walk away from that thing. So even there's some some consideration to be to be had with, with what motorcycle you, you you take because it's one of the most expensive um, items that you that you use on a trip. Mm-hmm. And and it may not just be at a border. It can also be like if you get in an accident or something like that. I mean, there's you're yeah, not going to exactly. have insurance for that. So if you get smacked or something happens, like forget it. It's mm-hmm. gone. Yeah, correct. In some cases, you can insure uh, some valuables, but others you can't. For instance, as uh, I think, I, I'm not sure if it applies to everybody, but as South Africans, you cannot really insure your motorcycle outside of the country. So whenever we travel, we can insure some of our valuables like laptops and cameras, but the actual motorcycle you can't. Um, so you must just be aware of, of what, what cover you can take and what you just must be able to walk away from and be able to replace. So sort of carrying your own insurance. That was the other thing I wanted to ask you about was if anyone was carrying insurance for their gear. Uh, Shirley, do you, do you guys do this? Do you, do you have travel insurance that covers the gear that you have with you, like your cameras, et cetera, et cetera, aside from the bike? Uh, yeah, we do. You do? We, um, but we take it mainly 
for the other things you get out of travel insurance, like if something happened to us and we needed medical attention. But um, those policies always have the theft component. Um, so we do have that insurance, but we've never actually had to use it. Well, anything else on this? Anyone have anything they want to talk about? Um, oh, I ran into something, an interesting little gadget. Well, I don't know if I can call it a gadget, but a, uh, a security strap made by steelcore.com. Um, it looks like your average webbing strap that you would put around a saddlebag to make sure it doesn't fall off. But it's also got a steel cable inside and it's cut resistant webbing with a padlock on it. So it's hmm. kind of cool for that little extra bit of security just to slow thieves down. Hmm. Yeah, that's a good tip. And I've just um, been mentally working on um, an anti-helmet um, theft device. It's, um, it's, it's part of your intercom system. So if somebody tries to snatch your helmet, there's this little voice that comes out that says, Oi, I'm still in here, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Lovely. I like it. <laughs> you know, I remember, this is a long time ago now, I remember there was a car parked at a at a plaza that I went into. And there was a guy that had walked up, as I, as I was sort of going in, I stopped and, and watched this go on, this because it caught my eye. As he approached the car, the car started honking or, or had some weird sounds to it. And it flashing his lights and it says um, something about violation, step away from the car. And the guy steps away from the car and it stops and he takes a forward step again and it starts going again. He steps away and he just kept doing this until finally he went up and he touched the car and the car starts screaming, I've been violated, I've been violated. <laughs> the lights are flashing. I thought, that is cool. <laughs> I need that for my bike. Well, anyway, so, yeah. so let's take a, a quick break here. Then we're going to talk about dealing with corrupt officials afterwards. So this episode is supported by freshtracks.co.uk. Fresh Tracks has been around since the 90s, and they work with companies and groups to inspire, motivate, challenge, and build communication skills through team building exercises. They work with a lot of companies like Comic Relief and Mars and Pfizer and, and Yahoo. So if you've got a company... Have a look at Fresh Tracks. Thank you very much, Fresh Tracks, for um, supporting Adventure Rider Radio Raw. That's freshtracks.co.uk. So dealing with corrupt officials is our part two of, uh, of this episode. Uh, a common experience that we hear for travelers is the corrupt official, whether it's a, a police person, a border guard, customs official. There, there seems to be variations of the same theme, a little palm cash to smooth the process for you or get you through or maybe get you off of some charge. Now, some laugh at it and, and think, you know, it's no big deal and they just pay it off. They don't mind paying small amounts. Other people are adamant, and I think some people here uh, in this group are adamant about not paying for this sort of thing. First, um, let, let's start off. To, do, do you guys have rules for yourselves? Do you pay corrupt officials? Do you work at it on a case-by-case -case basis? Surely. What do, you, what do you guys do? Um, well, we don't like paying, that's for sure. But Nobody we likes have um, we, <laughs> no, and um, we've been um, on our first trip when Brian was still working as a police officer and on leave. We were stopped by a corrupt official in the Czech Republic who thought that it would um, we looked like a likely target. He pulled a car over and us, and the, we saw the driver of the car from where we were sitting above put money into a cigarette packet and then give the copper the cigarette packet. And when he came up to us, Brian just kept demanding to see his superior 
and in the end produced his badge and um, we were waved on. Mm. Um, Brian's other great weapon for things like that is me because I will just keep talking and um, using a phrase book or my um, picture talk book and in the end they just say, we'd rather you take the mad woman away <laughs> than get the money. Brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> Well, and, and I know Grant has said this before about about that's the thing you can just drag it out because they want to they want to get their fast cash and move on. They don't want to spend too much time with you. And if you're going Absolutely. on and on, I yeah. think I forget who he was who was saying that used to do the stomping around and, and talking nonstop. Peter Forward. Peter Forward. I told right. you about Peter. I mentioned about Peter Forward does that. He'll just go round and round, and that is worse because rather than just standing in front of him. If you go round and round, then they start twisting around and trying to follow you. And Peter just goes round and round and round and rants and raves and just goes on and on and on, not being rude or anything. Just, you know, basically, I'm not going to pay and this isn't right and this is not fair and you shouldn't be doing this and blah, 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 blah. And they just send him on his way because he's more trouble than he's worth. Right. Yes. They always try and hit you for the you were doing 62 in a 60 zone and you have to pay your fine to us. Um, and that's the good time to just keep talking and talking because they know there's people going past who are going to pay, pay the money. Um, uh, on another occasion, we got pulled up and Brian did demand to see the superior officer who came down and they discovered that Brian outranked them all, so they saluted and let us go. <laughs> oh, brilliant. I love it. But with, with the cops, when they pull you over for that speeding trick and they want you to pay, you just say, I don't have any cash. You know, I've got $2 or something and uh, I'll pay it in town tomorrow. And they don't want you to do that. They'll mm -hmm. also threaten to take your license and you'll have to pay in town tomorrow. And of course, you don't want that. But the, the trick that's kind of standard now is you have a spare driver's license. Mm -hmm. You say, okay, here. And you give them the spare license and say, yep, I'll see you in town tomorrow. And... They don't want that either, so they give you your license back and send you off. Now, now Shirley, now I, I know you're going to head off here, but just before you go, I just want to find out, is that a, like, do you guys have a policy, you and Brian, that you don't pay bribes or you just do your best not to? Uh, no, the policy is not to. And I can't remember where we ever have um knowingly paid a bribe. We got ripped off um, by border guards once on insurance and um, we were certainly off our game that day because I was suffering really badly from um, altitude sickness and um, Brian wasn't concentrating too much on what was happening around us and we paid for a document which clearly was a piece of paper with stamps on it that meant nothing. Um, uh, so I guess that was paying a bribe in that in that respect. And, and uh, we it, at one border crossing in South America, the guy wanted a $5 tourist tax, which um, clearly went into his top drawer for his Christmas fund. Mm. And you just pay it. And, and in, in those cases, when you're at a border, it's a bit hard to fight. But when they pull you up on the side of the road and it's clearly just uh, trying it on, you can talk your way out of those usually. Mm-hmm. And now, now you're you're heading off, so you're departing. Did, did you have a um, pitch for the end of the show? You'd be so surprised if I had a, a plug, wouldn't you? Seriously. Yeah. Do you? Yeah. Yes. No, I don't. I'm oh. sorry. <laughs> <laughs> and apologies that I have to leave early, but I just um, I've just got to bail. Yeah. No but worries. I will talk to you all next month, and Brian will be back next month. So. 
Well, we look forward to that. Thank you very much, Shirley. We'll talk to you later. Thanks, everyone. Cheers, Shirley. Bye. Cheers, Shirley. Sam, do you have a a rule about dealing with corrupt officials? Um, Yeah, I've never had to pay a bribe in all of the years of traveling, but I do approach each situation as an individual situation because by doing that, it means that I'm staying on the ball, if you're with me. I'm not just being, no, I'm not paying. I'm not paying. I'm not paying. Um, I'm, it, it just means that I'm open to working my way around in, um, in in individual situations. I mean, my attitude is that there are parts of the world where the wage for the officials is incredibly poor. So they subsidize that by asking for extras from tourists and overlanders. And I don't blame them for trying. But sometimes it is pure corruption. Tourists do make it harder for overlanders because unless they were the good guide, then they too often freak out at the potential aggression that um, comes with these requests. And they hand over the loot that's asked for. And I've seen it happen, even if the amount is um, ridiculous. And I think that overlanders should be very wary of simply stumping up because they just make it hard for the next overlanders who are following them. But the greater percentage of motorcycle overlanders I know have never paid a bribe. And there are some parts of the world where it's incredibly difficult, I hear, to get through. Um, Some northwest African countries to the south of Morocco, for example, have a, a fearsome reputation. And I think most officials just aren't out to cause you grief, whether they're at borders or checkpoints. Some are simply having a bad day. And if you show friendly respect and be calm and don't get impatient... Um, then actually you can talk your way out of these situations. And what Shirley said about talking nonstop, it works. And I've I've several times um, been pulled over at a checkpoint and my way of been to deal to deal with this is to jump straight off the bike, um, pull up the, the flip front of my helmet, take my glove off and reach out and just shake everybody by the hand, say hello in their language. And if I can speak enough of their language then to say the words to them, if not, then intimate to them that I'm just really happy that I found them. And thank goodness. And could they tell me the best road to get to such and such a... Um, and that always works. You ask for help in those situations, and they're so gobsmacked that you're being overtly friendly and just incredibly chatty. And inevitably, I've ended up being on some really nice roads, mostly that I've already known about. <laughs> but I think part of it is just don't be impatient. No, I, I like that, though, what you're doing, because you're really taking control of the situation. They had control when they pulled you over, and then you take it from them But by doing that and and turn it around. And by that time, they probably lost their momentum for the scam. I mean, and they've probably gotten to like you a little bit. It seems to work. And I'm not being aggressive. I'm just being overly friendly and enthusiastic, and I'm asking for their help. Mm-hmm. And I will instinctively want to help. So by asking for it and treating them with respect, you're at the same level with them or you're giving them the respect that they're at a higher level than you are and that, you know, they're knowledgeable and you're not. And it's those little things that sort of club together to just seem to work. And yeah, um, I, I've never been fearful. I mean, in, in Ethiopia, they, I mean, this is just after the civil war had finished. We rounded a corner. Um, we we're way up in the mountains, far away from any villages and so on. We round a corner and there's a string of militia in front of us. And it could have turned quite nasty because these guys have been living shoot first, ask questions later. But uh, I'm pretty sure it was the sound of our motorcycles being strange that didn't have them firing straight away. And the fact that we were just straight off the bikes and 
and helmets and gloves off and handshakes and smiles. And um, we discovered that actually we had a bunch of motorcycle enthusiasts in front of us. Hmm. And I, I think if you go into these situations looking afraid, you're making yourself look vulnerable. And if there are real any genuine sharks there, um, they're going to pick up on the scent of your fear. And that just gives them even more power. Um, and it, there are lots of simple little rules that you can follow um, when you're doing um, border crossings and dealing with paperwork and things like that. For example, I always use a, a coloured plastic folder for them to go into. Bright blue, for example. It's really easy to keep track of as it heads into an office area. And if you already know that you need six of something or seven of it, then just automatically have a couple of extra copies to hand because rules do change um, or are misunderstood by the officials in the out of the way places. Sometimes a document can mysteriously go missing. So those extra copies are nice to have. And if you get somebody who is a dodgy character and just asking for extra copies because they know that you don't have them and therefore you're going to have to pay them a little something extra to let you still through, well, you've got the copy, so they haven't got a leg to stand on anymore. And I think it's also if you can make these guys' jobs easier um, when you're in those sorts of situations, then you make a friend. If you have a document made up in the language of the country that you're coming to with such things as your passport number, your driving license number, the bike's frame number, the engine number, and all of those sorts of things, and it's all on a, on a document and you hand that over with a smile and a handshake, then all of a sudden you're being seen to be helpful. And yeah, but I mean, sometimes it is a case of simply not understanding what's being asked by a dodgy official. And there for me, it's smiles and shoulder shrugs and an expression on my face that I'd really like to help them, but I absolutely don't understand. But I think the key is just never to show panic and it's rarely appropriate to get aggressive. I've seen people do that in situations like this. And to me, being aggressive is absolutely the last straw and sometimes after you've been really calm and polite and friendly and enthusiastic and um, so on and that's not working then very obviously um, stealing your voice digging your heels in demanding to see senior officials etc etc and that can just turn the situation around for you because you've laid the groundwork by you know the sorts of things that I've been you know describing um I don't know, sometimes it can be things like with your paperwork. It's very easy now to go to a border crossing, for example, and to know what paperwork is required because you can ask that of the embassy of the country before you head to their countries. Um, and so if they say, well, 10 copies of this and 10 copies of that and 10 copies of the other, um, and you've got the email responding to you, then you just wave that email and the copies at the officials. And I've had people um, back off from me and I've heard several stories about that sort of thing. But um, I, don't, I don't know. I, I very, very rarely um, get hassle with checkpoints and border crossings and things like that. I quite like them, really. Does that make me weird? A little bit. Uh, you're talking like, like the border crossings. You don't like the problems. <laughs> no, I don't. I, I enjoy the border crossings. Um, I like, I mean, because I get there first thing in the morning and I've shown respect by, you know, I'm, I'm doing the border crossing and the cleanest, shabbiest clothes that I've got. So I'm, I'm showing respect by being clean. Um, I don't clean my motorcycle, so that's covered in dust and looks like it's well-worn and as if it doesn't actually worth very much. 
and I go in with a handshake and a smile and too many copies. And um, it's, yeah, entertaining. And if they want to play silly buggers with me, well, they can, can't they? They've got a whole day because I'm there first thing in the morning. But I do find that officials later on in the afternoon tend to get a bit grumpy because they've spent the whole day dealing with people who haven't got the right paperwork and who are just causing them grief and waving and shouting at them and all that sort of stuff. So um, by being there first thing in the morning, you've got them fresh and they're still getting used to the day and... I've been invited around the back for coffees and um, on one occasion at um, eight o'clock in the morning for a beer, um, which, mm. of course, I didn't say no to and rode with a very happy smile for the next few miles. I just want to highlight the one thing you, you one of the things you said in there, due diligence. You know, if that's mm-hmm. one way to avoid being scammed is by knowing in advance what you're obligated to do, what you're supposed to have, because then somebody's not going to give you this thing saying, oh, you need this insurance and you have to buy it because you don't really know if you do. Whereas if you do your research in advance, like you said, then you're, you're, you got yourself covered. Mm-hmm. And you still do come across um, dodgy situations going from um, Nicaragua into Honduras. Um, it's just a very small border crossing that we were on. And um, I, I remember the building. It was this fine old um, colonial building with aduana printed in an arch over the, the front door to this thing. And we went inside and we dealt with the customs officer first and all our paperwork was in order. And um, he said to us, you have to go to the police next, but be very careful of this man. He will ask you money. You do not need to pay him. And we thought, how cool is this? We'd never had that before. So we went into the the police office and there's the policeman and he looks a little bit like a weasel and he's sitting behind his big metal desk and there's one of his henchmen hanging over his shoulder and uh, he's sort of clicking fingers at us. And Birgit's Spanish was way better than mine. So um, she was tending to deal with the officials and um, I did the henchman bit. (laughs) and this policeman, he, t- he took our passports and uh, made notes in his ledger. And he was about to put them in his pocket. And Birgit just reached over and um, took them from his hand and said, thank you very much for your help. Right, goodbye. And walked out the door. Brilliant. <laughs> yes. Well done. It is brilliant. Magnus and Elsby, how about you guys? Do you have a, a policy for, for bribes, corrupt officials? Well, look, we... It's the same as, as, as everyone else. We, we, we have a very um, big thing about not paying bribes, but, you know, the world's a funny place. You sometimes get yourself into a place where you just get so intimidated by, by whatever's happening around you that you probably will, will, we call it dealing with bureaucracy. You know, you pay a bribe. We, I don't think we ever paid no, a bribe. No, never paid. Our approach is much, much the, same the same as Sam. And we've always got this thing, even if we're just uh, coming down the road and these police in the front, we will immediately lift the visors and take off our uh, sunglasses so that we've got an open face, we've put the smile on, and we've really had any any problems. Once we made the mistake, we passed on a double yellow line and rightly so got pulled over. And then the trick of just talking too much in a, uh, not in their language and handing everything except that they wanted, that got us out of uh, out of a situation there. But no, we haven't paid any bribes. But we're not, I'm not, um, I know, and, and like Sam, we also encourage people not to pay bribes for whatever it takes. But like I say, you know, the world's a funny place. You just, 
I know of a lady the other day in, in Mexico that she did pay a bribe and she mentioned it on, on Facebook and people took her out. But I know this lady and I, I know that she was just at, she was at a place, she was alone. There was just no other means for her than not paying a bribe. You know, so mm-hmm. it, it's maybe also not not good that we too hard on, on people that if they if they actually do pay a bribe, which I don't agree with, but it is made. Sometimes something like that does happen. Um, with people, and if they intimidate you properly, you're probably going to pay a bribe. Well, I spoke with people before who said they don't have time in in their situation to not pay the bribe. They don't have the day to hang out, uh, you know, at the border, or they don't necessarily want to. And to them, the, you know, $5, you know, or whatever it is, a small amount of bribe they might have to pay, you know, it's worth their while to sort of grease the wheel and get them through quickly. Price isn't going to be $5 yeah. next time around for them if they came to yeah. $10. Yeah, yeah, that's the sad, yeah. sad side. It is, it, is, it is all around a bad thing. But I think, I'm, I'm, I don't know, I'm, I'm sucking stuff out of my thumb here, but, it, you know, 10 years ago, 12 years ago, the bri- some of the bribing in some of the countries was really bad. I'm not sure if it, if it stopped a little bit, if there's more accountability, I don't know. But it feels like it's not... As bad as well. Yeah, maybe people don't talk about it. Maybe they do bribe, you just don't know about it. Do you know, one of the things that I've noticed um, with comments that people are making, again, social media is great for picking up on this sort of stuff. And it's very easy to see which is smoke blowing and which is um, um, reality. But one of the the comments that I've picked up several times recently is that it's become a lot easier with border crossings and the like because so many border crossings are computerized now. Mm. When you said easier, you meant easier for bribes or easier to get through? Easier to get through and without paying a bribe because um, the official document is there, uh, documentation, the list of equipment, etc. And social media has helped, as loathsome as it is, social media has helped that if people, enough people make a fuss about it, that that it gets to authorities and and they, they... to get onto this stuff. So maybe that also helped um, in, the, in the past few years. There's a lot more people doing overland travel and general travel through, across countries now than there used to be by far. The numbers are far, far higher. So that means that more people are going to complain to the embassy or whatever, and then it starts coming down on the locals. Mm-hmm. There's quite a difference there. And mm-hmm. When we started traveling way back in 87, um, some of our first borders through Central America. It's like, wow, you didn't have a choice. It was, I remember coming up to one guy's desk and he had some paper in front of him and he wanted to see my papers. He says, okay, and it's $5. And he stamped a piece of paper and put his hand out and he gave me the piece of paper and I gave him the $5. He put it in the drawer and closed it and the paper just had a stamp on it. And that was it. It was totally worthless. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I didn't know I was paying a bribe. Right. I, mean, I was new to all of it in the first place. Yeah. And second, I didn't have a choice. <laughs> yeah. So that's falling victim of a scam. Yeah, not, not so much a, a paying a bribe. Hey, hey where, yeah. uh, Elspie, where, where do you guys find that it's most prevalent, the request for the bribe? Is that at police stops, border crossings? Like, do you know? You know, Jim, to be quite honest, we haven't been in a a lot of those situations. I think our approach is just so different. If we, in Africa, if we had a border crossing for the day, we would put the whole day out. Um, And we agree with Sam. A lot of people say, go 
two hours or an hour before they close because then they want to go home and they rush you through. It might be true in some in some cases, but for us, be there early in the morning, be friendly. And if you really see this is because we had a, a, a situation in Sudan where they wanted us to pay a bribe to expedite our paperwork. And we just, we overlanders, we took out a coffee machine, we had friends there, and we just made a whole day out of it. So eventually just they came and give us our papers and were very upset with us. But on the roadside, again, I don't know if it is us stopping, smiling, and the one or few times that we had a guy that really wanted to extort us, we would just be adamant, still smiling, adamant that we need to speak to a superior because it's dangerous to travel with cash and we're not going to pay on the spot fines. Um, so maybe we've just been really lucky so far that, that we weren't in such bad situations. Look, in Africa, it is true that the traffic police, you have probably a traffic police officer trying to bribe you for being over the limit and a, a, guarder, a border, border post because there's so many traffic police out there. Botswana is, is full of them. Uh, Namibia, luckily, is dirt roads. So they don't um, catch people there. But, but I think they're so blasé, they don't even ask for a bribe. They just ask straight for out for coke money. Yeah, no, that, no, they'll be honest with you and say, listen, I need coke money. And you'll give them like two or three dollars and, and they have a chat with them and they greet you and off you go or something like that. But uh, it, 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 many of the countries, it's not even big big money that they're asking. They, they literally just, like in Zanzibar, they would come up to you and say, well, I want some coke money. You say, but I gave coke money to the guy before you. Oh, okay, all right, no problem. <laughs> But then it's in South America, we haven't had anything. We, no, we, we haven't had anything. Not once. So w- what about fake officials? Has anyone run into fake officials? Oh, luckily not. Well, we don't well, we know of. Know of. <laughs> <laughs> That's true, right? You'd have to, Sam, you've never run into them? Um, of course, there is the story about um, running the border, uh, running the uh, checkpoint in Ethiopia, but we won't go there because I've told that story before. And yes, they shot at me and yes, there were bad shots and I'm very lucky to be sitting here. So moving rapidly on. Um, in India, northern India in particular, um, you quite often come across um, men who ex- try and extract a toll from you um, to use a section of road. And um, uh, yeah, Mostly on a motorcycle, you're just waved on through. Um, these guys are just local guys, and um, they've taken it upon themselves to fill the potholes in the road. And so extracting the toll is their way of actually earning some money out of what they're doing. And so it's a service. You're getting paid for a service. And I didn't have a problem a couple of times um, paying for that, but other times they just literally wave you on through. And it was literally just a couple of rupees and that's that. So I don't look at that as being a bribe. Um, I was very grateful they were filling the holes. Um, But yeah, no, I've I've never come across officials that aren't who they say they are. Or if I have, then I've not been aware of it and I've certainly not paid them any money. Um, Maybe I'm just lucky. We had uh, the same situation with the potholes filling uh, in Colombia. And it was the same thing. They just looking for a little bit of money. And most of the times, again, if it was a motorcycle, they would just drop the rope or whatever they had across the road and we could carry on. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. um, I've heard of this a a couple of times, but I think 
it's more hearsay than reality. Um, I know I've heard of one Central American border where somebody was all dressed up and had a badge and everything else, but he was obviously fake. And even the uh, the actual officials there said, ignore him. He's not really with us. So I think people worry about it more than reality. Mm-hmm. But uh, I was always thinking there's there's a few things that perhaps hasn't been, been covered about this, dealing with officials. And I think one of the important things to always keep in mind is it's their country. It's their rules. And just because it's not done the way you expect it to be done or the way you think it should be done, it doesn't matter. It's, it's their rules. It's their country. And it, even more importantly, whoever's standing in front of you, it's their rules, even more than their country. He has the power to deny anything if he feels like it. So you have to make it worth his while to make you happy because you're basically a pain in the butt or maybe a few dollars in his pocket. So Sam's concept of walking up and being friendly and stuff like that, I absolutely agree. Um, When I walk into a border crossing, if I possibly can, I'll walk up and say, hola, or whatever is the local, reach out, shake their hand. And they're always, what? (laughs) Gobsmacked. It's just... Mm-hmm. This doesn't happen. So you're putting them off their game. You're not treating them like they're normally used to being treated as you're a pain in the butt and I just want to get out of here and just, just don't bother me. Um, all of a sudden, you're a guest in their country. That's a whole different attitude that suddenly becomes the way that things work together. So you start working together to make it happen and to get things sorted out and um, ask him for where's a nice nice place to go or what's his favorite place in the country to visit or something like that, something that's rather innocuous. Um, and it makes a huge difference. So I think that's, a, that's an important thing to do. And the other important one, I think, is when you go into these places, like the people who say go the last hour or two versus the people who say go first thing in the morning, like, Elsa B and Mickness and Sam and myself as well, is that the people who are going last hour or two are treating the whole thing as a pain in the butt. This is going to be a problem. It's going to be miserable. Try and get through as quick as you can. Try and get get these guys to get, get rid of you and make it an easier transition. Whereas the rest of us go in there with, this is going to be an interesting day. I wonder what I'm going to see and who I'm going to talk to, and what strange rules and requirements they have. This is going to be something I can talk about and tell stories about. It's going to be a fun day. Mm. Which attitude would you prefer for a day? Mm. I know which one I prefer. Yeah. I'd, I'd rather end up singing at a border than, um, than paying a bribe. And yeah, well, you know that that's what happened to me once. Should I retell this story? Sure. <laughs> So the, the border between Honduras and El Salvador, and we hadn't planned to go to El Salvador, but we heard quite a few good comments about it. Well, we didn't realise that we were about to ride into a country in the middle of political elections. So, uh, lots of um, blank, you know, dark um, screened four by fours and um, people with machine guns hanging on the, the the running boards and all that sort of stuff. But before we actually got there. We arrived at this border and I, it was the first border crossing that we'd done in Central America that we were, um, that, that was a big border crossing. It was all tiny little border crossings prior to that. 
And so there were all these um, semi-trucks, um, Macs and internationals and, you know, all of that sort of stuff. Um, so we were quite impressed by the, the hustle and bustle and noise. But when you looked past these vehicles, then you still had um, the, the man sitting in his um, stained singlet top with five days of um, gristle on his chin and a lot of grease as well. And, um, yeah, the, the mangy dogs and the kids running around and the chickens and, um, you know, all of that sort of stuff. And you had the tramitadores, the ones who wanted to help you through um, for, a, for a small fee and so on. Birgit and I always... Um, managed to just by asking questions and using our eyes and watching where the queues of people were and that sort of thing we used to work out how to do this anyway so we approached this border crossing and we parked the bikes up and we sat and watched what was going on and after a very short while um, uh, an official dressed in a paramilitary black jumpsuit with um, lace-up boots over the um, up above his ankles and a, a pistol in his in his um, belt and everything else like that. And so he came striding straight to, across towards us, and we thought, "Oh, this doesn't look good," because he was he was striding with an intent. And um, when he got to us, all he said was, um, "Come on." your visitors, I'm going to show you through the system. I'll take you through to the different offices. And we thought, mm, this feels a little bit too good to be true, but he seems like a really nice guy. So let's get on with it. And that's what he did. And um, then he said, um, towards the end of the operation, um, I, you know, I didn't want any money from you, but I do want something from you. Can you sing? Um, oh, do you like pop music? Well, yeah. Um, so what pop music do I like? And I mean, put on the spotlight that I couldn't think of anybody. So I said, the Beatles. And he said, well, do you sing? And I said, well, badly. And he said, good, sing us a song. So there I am singing A Hard Day's Night at the top of my voice at a border crossing between Honduras and El Salvador <laughs> with the official in his black jumpsuit clicking his fingers to me singing and everybody else popping up and down. It was so funny. I will never forget. And to me, that's, that's border crossings. It's, they can be absolute fun. Do you suppose that he was he made a bet <laughs> when he Can saw I you that I'll this? bet? <laughs> well, um, if he, if if he bet on actually getting me to do it, then he was quids in or pesos in anyway. I would think that's what he what he did. If if he was betting, yes, he would say, "I'll bet I can make this guy stand up there and sing a song for us." You just watch me. <laughs> he looks like a nutter. There you go. Yeah. He didn't, he didn't use his gun to, to make you start to, to sing and dance. No, no, no. If he had done, I might have, I might have hit the high notes better. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's funny. That same that same border crossing is where one time I, I lost my temper because they weren't moving. They were paying. They were shoving people in, in the front of the queue for bribes. And there was two buses with people standing in a queue. And they were just not moving. Two hours later, people still standing there. And then I walked up to the place where we, we had to do, sign the, or, or stamp the motorcycle and asked him, so who's in charge of this whole place? Because this line is not moving. And there's other people paying bribes to, to get shoved into the into the line. And he showed me around the corner to the office and I, I walked up to the office, knock on the door and it was like this burly man sitting down the desk. And I said to him, come on, senor, this is not how it works. There's two, two uh, buses full of people standing there. Your, uh, do you not know what's going on in your in your um, in, in this place? What, what what's happening here? Why why do we, why it's not moving? And he says to me, "Bring me your passport." So I walk out. I get Elspeth's passport. I walk back in. He stamp. He says, "You go." I say, "What my my motorcycle papers?" He says, "I don't want to want that." Just go. And um, as we stop at the at the next uh, crossing, 
uh, booking in, uh, suddenly a whole bus roof of people are following us. So he quickly sorted that out. But it wasn't that I, I intentionally, just after two hours of, of standing there watching people getting paying bribes to get through, I just thought, man, something has to happen here. So um, luckily they had a good turnout. It wasn't a, nothing bad happened after that. Did you go in and sort of accost him or are you going in and asking nicely? I was, I was asking nicely, but I was, he was hot I, and I was, bothered. I was hot and bothered and I, I, but, I, but I wasn't nasty or anything. I, I just, I was very firm. It was like, man, you know, like, please, what, you know, what, what's happening here? These people are, are pulling bribes under your, under your nose. There's two buses full. Really? There was two uh, buses of people standing there, locals, and they just couldn't get nowhere. And um, so I was I was more pleading, I don't know, what's, it, what's the correct word, but it was more pleading, um, um, frustrated. Like a passive case, like, please, man, come on, you know, do something about this. And um, suddenly things just, just, things just happened. I wouldn't, I wouldn't pull that everywhere. No, you wouldn't yeah, pull it everywhere? No, I won't pull it everywhere. That that day, I mean, like, like places like... Um, uh, some some Af- African countries I will not do that because they they will definitely be more spiteful, be way way more spiteful than, than that. But that day, just there was just nothing else to do. I mean, these people were standing in a queue outside two hours long, and nothing was happening. It was just some few people in the front that that was moving all the all the time. So because either we stood there for the net, next four hours, I go ask him and and see if I can resolve this issue. <laughs> That's an interesting comment you just made, though, Elspie, as well, about that you wouldn't do it somewhere else. So how do you know where you can sort of push things and where you can't? I think you get a feeling when you stand there. You you get to read uh, body language, I think, a little bit more as you travel and as you do border crossings. Um, and you can immediately see if you at a border crossing, if this guy's out, he's just mad, he, he doesn't want to be at his job, or where he's got this facial expression that uh, he's been waiting, wait, here's a wallet coming. Um, I think you slowly but surely learn to read the situation. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sometimes you have to take local help. Um, an experience I had in Egypt, Cairo, we were trying to fly the bike out of Egypt to um, Kenya because we couldn't get through through Sudan at the time. It was absolutely no go for foreign travelers. So the only way south was to fly. But there's a little catch. When you fly your bike out, they have to stamp the carnet out. Well, they didn't want to stamp the carnet out until the bike was not only on the plane and uh, in their customs official or official area, but they wanted the bike to be in the air before they would stamp the carnet. Well, of course, I'm also flying out and I'm going to be on the same plane. And they said, well, that's what we have to do. We will send you the carnet to Kenya. Yeah, like that's going to happen. <laughs> oh, especially with Egypt. Oh, Lord. <laughs> yeah, especially with Egypt. Yeah, no yeah. Way. Especially with Egypt. I mean, we were in the um, customs official building in Cairo Central. And I don't know if anybody of you have ever been in there, but imagine a very large building full of racks, 10, 20 feet high, full of paper, stacks of paper, with a significant chunk of that paper on the floor because it's so stacked so high, it's literally falling off onto the ground. 
If anybody's wondering why your carnet stamp doesn't get back to your carnet issuing authority to stamp you out of Egypt properly, it's on the floor in that building. It's just nuts. It's done yeah. thing. Yeah. So anyway, we had this conversation and we went around and around and around with the guys. And they said, no, no, that's the way it has to be. That's the way it has to be. And I got just got fed up and I went to the tourist police and said, you know, this is a problem. This is not acceptable. And they kind of agreed with me. And they went with me to talk to an official and said, no, no, this, this has to be done the other way. He has to have the paperwork stamped. And then the bike flies out because you've already got the bike in customs bond. You have control of the bike. I, I no longer have control of it. And they said, no, 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 can't do that. Can't do that. No. And the tourist police and I walked away and we gave up and um, I'd had a guy organizing the crating of the bike and I talked to him and he said, oh, yeah, okay, I understand the problem. You need to go in to this guy with the tourist police and I'll go with you and you need to get very angry and stamp on the de- uh, pound on the desk and make, make him very clear that you are angry and this is not acceptable. And the tourist police will say this is not acceptable and I will say this is not acceptable, but you have to show that you're angry and you're serious. Well, you could guess how well I played that part when we were there. <laughs> With the mission. Yeah. <laughs> All pre, pre-arranged, you could pre-organized. Yeah. And he just listened to it and stood up and said, you're right. I will take care of it. And he stamped it on the spot and handed me the paper and we walked away. Wow. I had yeah. to be serious. What were they Otherwise, after? Were they after? <laughs> were they waiting for you to offer something for it? I don't know, and nobody ever said anything about a bribe or a fee or anything. Nothing, not a word. If somebody had said a, a fee will be required, I would have said, fine. Yeah. Not a problem. Mm-hmm. This is like five um, days of this back and forth. Yeah. So so when we got our car nice ground, just to get into, into that one, they told us that the moment we get out of Egypt, you get your car nice stamped and you fax that paper back, your corner office because the Egyptians automatically demand the money uh, put that in the claim. For, yes. they put in a claim for that money saying that your bike didn't leave the so that 200% so they um, when we got into Israel that same day we faxed the papers back to um, to South Africa yeah um, I had exactly the same thing and <laughs> yep a year later um, a claim for the uh, Egyptian customs that I had not left with my bike that's bizarre. Yeah, now that's, I've heard that from yeah, a lot of people. Yeah. Is that is that current as well? Like, Mignus, when, when were you there? So um, we were there eleven, and oh. we got like Sam. We after we gave you the paper, I think six months later, the lady from uh, the Kana contacted us and says, "Yep, clockwork claim came through." They they actually said we needed to bring the original document back before they cancel it. But then when they heard we were going through Egypt and that would be basically the last time we used the carnet, uh, she immediately said, just wherever you can, send me a photograph, go to a police station if you couldn't get it signed out of Egypt, just go with your document, send me something to prove that you're out because we, we know we'll get a claim. Yeah. I've had the same thing. I talked to the gentleman at the RAC in England, and they said that it's absolutely 100% normal, and that's why they were charging at that time 600% on um, the carnet for Egypt at the time, uh, because they said it's only supposed to be 200% duty, but 
because they're such a pain in the ass, we charge extra. Um, and that was the normal thing. Yeah, they always send it through. The main thing that people need to understand is that the absolute proof that you have exited that country is your stamp into the next country. And even better is the stamp home. So when you actually fly home, I mean, Canada, U.S., they don't ask for a carnet. They barely know what to do with it. But when you go home, um, have them stamp the carnet as entering into your country. That's the return home. And that is your absolute proof that the bike has left Egypt. Otherwise, yep, there could be a problem. Hmm. What do you think about it? That's a that's a, um, a a pretty big percentage worth of problem. By the time I went through, it was eight hundred percent of the value oh. of the motorcycle that it was worked out on. Yeah. Um, and of course, in nineteen ninety two, I had a brand new GS, um, so it's worth a lot of money. But can you imagine eight hundred percent on a new motorcycle now? Ooh, eye watering. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. That's you must be too serious. Yeah. If you, uh, we had a good look at the, uh, shall we say, parking lot at Egyptian Customs, which is where all the vehicles that yeah. had a problem with the paperwork were sitting. Imagine a very large parking lot, sort of football stadium-sized parking lot, with Land Rovers, nice cars of all kinds, just solid with an inch of dust on them, and they, every single one of them had had a problem with the paperwork. The serial numbers didn't match. One number was off. Something was slightly wrong. Mm-hmm. Confiscated. That's it. You're, you're smuggling. And they would just take it away from you. You're making me think about border crossing between Nepal into India. So Birgit and I rocked in and they've been rising on the Nepalese side um, the night before. So everybody was sort of locked up inside the hotel and there was sort of burning tires on the street and all of this sort of stuff. It was actually quite an edgy situation. But the next morning it was just reasonably calm, but the air was still full of the smell of burning rubber. Um, went through the Nepalese side of the border, efficient as always, went into the Indian side and to my, my surprise, they were really efficient too. Um, not how it had been at previous crossings. Um, but um, there was a whole line of DR650s and Africa Twins and BMW R80s, the occasional um, R100GS and so on. You know, all the, the bikes of that time. And there must have been 20 or so of them just sort of standing up against a wall covered in dust. And once we'd finished all of our paperwork, then we asked the question, so what are all those bikes doing there? Oh, well, these guys are the people who have no respect for India. What, what do you mean? Well, they all used forge, forged carnets and mm. we're not stupid, you know. And so their bikes had just been instantly confiscated and that was that. Yep. I'm still perplexed whether we were bribed, whether we actually paid a bribe or we actually just paid the fee that they demanded. I, I could, they were so good at, at getting money from you that I can do this. They don't, they don't know whether we paid a bribe or not. Yep, I have no idea either. I just paid the fee. They've got paperwork. They do stamps. They they ask for a fee. You pay yeah. it. You move on to the next office. I, I forget how many offices yeah. I went into. There's so many. Yeah. This is one of the advantages yeah, of talking the to the riders coming towards you. Um, yeah. The people who've just done that crossing, because then you can very quickly pick up on, oh, yeah, this office needs that, this, that, and the other, and there'll be a fee to pay there and you know, all this sort of stuff. So you go in forewarned and, um, yep. yeah, um, you, so you also get to pick up on other people's instincts. I'm reminded of a couple of guys in Central Africa. I won't name the country, but they pulled up to the border in the middle of the Sahara Desert somewhere, and they were told that it was a $5 fee each to cross through. And they said, no, but we were, our embassy told us that there was no fee to cross at this border. It's $5. Mm. 
And they went around and round and round. And in the end, the two of them ended up sitting there for two days before they gave up and paid the $5 fee. Of course it was a bribe, but come on. Sometimes you just pay <laughs> yeah, no. it well, de- Dealing with bureaucracy. Yeah, you have to deal with it. Um, they, they are in control. Sometimes you just have to pay yeah. the price. We don't like to, but we try not to, and that's the rule. Yeah, well, ultimately, like you said, it's their country, and they're in control, and they, they have they have say over whether you're going to do, uh, whether you're going to go or not. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. So you can yeah. choose to sit there in the hot desert sun or just pay the fee, mm-hmm. knowing that those guys probably mm-hmm. haven't been paid for six months. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Listen, guys, I'd like to say cheers. I'm just supping on a very fine glass of pear snaps at the moment. Birgit was away in Germany while I was in the States, and she bought me back a rather large bottle, um, gift of her parents. So cheers to you all. Wow, um, very nice. Pear snaps. Oh, cheers. cheers. I will cheers. raise my glass of iced water. Hmm. Uh, and, and me, my, my plastic Nalgene of, of water. <laughs> I think I'm on the winning, so winning all, end of this. Yeah, I think you are. Yeah, it sounds uh, like it. It's half past one in the morning with us. I'm, I'm going to, uh, well, tequila won't work and I don't even have it here. <laughs> yeah, it's half past midnight here, so uh, we're, we're doing well. Yeah. Well, let's move on to plugs. Mickness, what do you have for a plug? Thank, thanks so much, uh, uh, Jim. So the new Tricana gear that uh, the stuff that we've got, it's on the, it's probably going to ship to the USA into into Europe uh, within next month, I think, or the month after. So they'll be, they will be there by January, um, hopefully on, on the latest. And we're really happy about it because the guys were, were um, waiting for it for quite quite a long time. So a lot of the goodies will be there soon. Wow, Thank nice. you very much for this one. So, what have you been working on? What what new well, kids? We, we uh, uh, more tank bags that, that we've done for the for Tacana. Then we've also working on a on a new system of, of uh, fixed luggage, which I can't unfortunately not, not say anything about. But I think it's going to be really really cool. Um, and then we we're developing our bags. Uh, we use a Molly and Pal system, so a lot of the bags that we we we're doing now that's going into manufacturing will cross over between motorcycles, bicycles, and four by fours. Um, so yeah, we've we've done quite a lot of uh, development while we were here in South Africa, uh, making sure that the products that we're going to put out is value added that you can what you invest in can actually be being pulled through you can use it on uh, any motorcycle as well as into other hobbies as well nice wow this must be really exciting for you guys i mean this whole thing you know you this this brand new company and making all these bags designing this stuff getting to try it all out yeah, this it is fun. I must say, ATG, the whole train gear, our previous uh, company that that we started and founded 12, 13 years ago, was fun. Now, now it is all um, dynamic to it because we we have uh, international markets and, and a very very nice partners, um, Peter and the Audi, with with us in, into this whole thing. So it makes things a, a lot nicer and and. Um, and also, the longer we travel, the more we identify stuff, uh, and the product keeps um, evolving. Uh, so yes, it's quite fun at the moment. Mm. <laughs> Busy but fun. Now, Elsby, do you have a separate pitch? No, I'm happy with that one. <laughs> okay. Thank you, Sam. What have you got for a plug? Um, 
Can I do two, please? Especially as um, Shirley hasn't done one. Can I steal hers? So you want to take Shirley's plug spot and you want to use it for you? Yes. Oh, man. You could uh, give an Elsmuse one. She, she's missed that one as well. So oh, it's going to get there. We are. See, double, double oh, the value. Oh, man, here we and go. When, <laughs> when, I do this, when I do this, I think that you'll understand and you'll be all right about it. The first plug that I want to make is for Travis and Chantil Gill from Moto. And if you listeners aren't f- um, following them yet, then please don't miss the chance. They're posting some simply superb photographs and their YouTube films are great. They don't seem to be getting many followers, which really surprises me. And I can't work it out when the trip is working so wonderfully and their photos and films are so good. And I do wonder sometimes whether it's just that people don't understand the name Viajamoto. And that simply means traveling by motorcycle in Spanish. Um, and Travis and Chantil decided to use to ride the world when they were riding in Baja, um, and that was where the name come, came from. It's such an inspirational place. So, um, yeah, if you get the chance to, um, do click on them via Harmoto, and um, yeah, follow them um, Instagram, Facebook, um, because they're just doing some magic stuff, really good shares. Make I, can, I can second that. They're, they're really doing some stuff, yeah. No, I, I just want to say, I second Sam on that one. They they really do, and they take very nice photos. Um, they're doing it properly. We had them on the show. As a matter of fact, I'll, I'll put a link to that episode um, in the show notes for for this episode. Mm, terrific. No, fantastic. Um, my second plug is rather more selfish. Um, I'd like to plant thoughts in people's minds. The dollar to sterling exchange rate at the moment is, by um, uh, well, many currencies to the sterling, is absolutely powerful. And I don't see that that's going to change. Anybody who's been watching the no- news knows what a mess um, the government is in the UK. And I don't think it's going to get itself out of this hole um, in a hurry. So that makes it an absolutely fantastic time to buy signed copies of my books direct from me. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's, it's just absolutely shocking, um, how bad, um, how little this, um, sterling is worth at the moment. So anything that you can buy from the UK, um, yeah, have a serious good look at, um, at buying it now because even the postage, um, works out to be cheaper. It's bizarre. Um, the, the tables have really turned because the, the, you know, your, your pound has always been so strong. Mm, yeah. Yep combination of um, Brexit and the Conservative government over the last 12 years and yeah well um, the little people are paying the price big time and it's painful there are Mm. tears over here Um, but yeah for everybody who's outside the UK then this is the ideal opportunity um, to buy British products and get some money flowing into the country um, to the individuals because many British companies they're small you've got Adventure Spec and Lomo and um, all sorts so, um, yeah, do have a look at doing that. Um, you're going to help um, people quite a lot. Of course, you can still buy my books from Amazon. The Amazon copies have got the black and white photos, but um, buying them direct from me, from sam-manicum.com, or also from the book depository, um, you'll get the copies with the colour photos. I'm going to ask um, Jim and Bess if they will put the links in the show notes, please. And, uh, yeah, sign copies, heading your way by return. Thank you. And your website is sam-manicom.com. Correct. And Mickness, Turkana is turkanagear.com. Uh, that's correct, yes. You had to think about that? 
It's half past one in the morning. It's early in the morning. He's slowing down. His speech is slowing. His response is definitely slowing down there. Mine's just beginning to slow. Well, Grant, I wish I wish I could slow like Sam. That would have been much better than that. <laughs> Grant, what have you got for a plug? Well, as usual, we have events at horizonsunlimited.com slash events. We have South Africa, November 3 to 6. Pickness and also me, you need to be there. Check out the We're definitely going to try Yep. So check out horizonsunlimited.com slash events and see what the schedule is looking like. We're starting to add them in for next year. Okay. Well, that wraps things up, and, and it's a late night for some of us. I mean, we're all sort of getting in there as far as the evening goes. Even at me, it's uh, it's getting into the, the evening, not near what you guys are into. But uh, Mickness and Elsby, thank you very much for coming on again the second month in a row. Really appreciate it, and we enjoy having you here. It's it's great to have you join in. Thank you very much. Thank you for the invite. Thank you for the invite, and, and it's always nice chatting to you guys. Good to have you. Have Bye, fun. Guys. Yep. Well, thank you very thank much, you. everyone. It was great. And, and it's too bad Shirley had to pop out early, but hopefully next month we'll, we'll be all back to normal again. Thanks so much. Cheers. Good night, everybody. Cheers. Good night. Have a good week, everybody. Thank you. Well, that wraps things up for this month's ARR Raw. And thank you to my co-host, Sam Manicom, starting with Sam Manicom. He lives in the UK. He's got four books and audiobooks that follow his eight-year motorcycle journey around the world. His website, sam-manicom.com. Shirley Hardy Ricks and Brian Ricks are from Australia. They also publish their own books on motorcycle travel. You can buy them wherever you get e-books at their website, aussiesoverland.com.au. Michelle Lampfair is a motor traveler that also has a couple of great motor travel books, The Butterfly Route and Tips for traveling overland in Latin America. Both of those titles available on Amazon. As well, she has a motel for us motorcyclists and anyone else called the Chalet Motel. You can find out more about that at chaletmotelcuster.com. And of course, Grant Johnson is from Horizons Unlimited, which is the hub, literally, for our adventure motorcycling community. Horizons Unlimited has tons of up-to-date travel information, as well as a huge forum of dedicated travelers that connect you with other travelers. They also put on the hub meets around the world. You can see a worldwide list of hub meets at their website, horizonsunlimited.com. Special thanks to our producer, Elizabeth Martin. My name is Jim Martin. Thank you for listening. Join us again next time. Oh, and don't forget, if you want to get uh, your question or a topic suggestion in here, drop by our website. You can also look at the show notes. I have some more information in here. You can make comments on the show notes. AdventureRiderRadio.com. Adventure Rider Radio.